A good Friday morning to you on this June 11th. Welcome to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you alongside Sarah Hoyles, Samuel Brooks. This show is proudly presented by our title sponsor, the team at Bitcoin Well. I've, as a matter of fact, just a few moments ago posted one of the highlights of our uh, conversation, the clips, if you will, as we say in the biz. One of the clips from our conversation with Bitcoin Well founder Adam O'Brien. And uh, how good was Ovik Roy, by the way, as well, from Forbes the other day. You might have heard of that publication before. They, they talked about El Salvador becoming the first country in the world to make Bitcoin legal tender. What does it mean for crypto? What does it mean for other countries? If you missed that content, if you missed that interview, of course, you can find it wherever you subscribe to your podcast. You can find it on our YouTube channel. Thanks to everybody that subscribes. And you'll find Bitcoin well right at the top of the sponsors page at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in about 10 minutes, I'm looking forward to a conversation. Um, Dr. Clark Bannock from the Alberta Center for Sustainable Rural Communities. You remember you remember we were talking about on, on the uh, sort of on the advertising front with our live ad reads a while ago. We were talking to you about the Canadian Rural and Remote Housing and Homelessness Symposium. You remember that one? It went, uh, I guess, about 10 days ago. It was like June 1st to 4th or whatever it was. We talked a lot about rural issues and issues that are pertinent to people living outside the major urban centers. Dr. Bannock did a great I mean, this I, I can't wait to hear about his, uh, you know, oftentimes we'll bring on researchers and we'll say, let's talk about your findings. I want to talk to Clark about the process. I want to talk to him about how he visited dozens and dozens of rural communities, in particular in the province of Alberta. Spoke to, I think, off the top of my head after reading his piece in Alberta Views. I think he said he, he interviewed 138 people or something like that. Said the the the, uh, the quickest conversation was about 45 minutes. He said some of them were three hours. And he just picked people's brains about how they're feeling about their politics and, and their reality, their infrastructure, their taxes, their, their, you know, high speed or not so much broadband, whatever the case Clark dug into it and um, he titled a piece in the uh, most recent issue of Alberta Views, great magazine, by the way, called Rural Resentment. And we're going to get to that in just a bit. There it is right there. You can find it at albertaviews.ca. And then coming up our Friday, our Real Talk Roundtable, our Friday tradition goes live around 11 o'clock Eastern, around 9 o'clock Mountain Time ish. We should have it on Fridays. The show should be just Real Talk Ish, but like not ish, like not ish on the talk. Ish is just like the strap line, as they say. That's like the the promo line. I don't know if you say real talk ish. It might come around like the talk is not real. And then now I'm overthinking it. Uh, you know what? Throw that one in the trash pile. Okay, we'll put that over in trash talk. Got Throw it. that one over in trash talk. We've got. I was reading through uh, some of the submissions for trash talk that we have for this week. It's it's our it's how we wrap up our Friday shows, as you know, presented by the team at Local Waste, and these are Real Talk audience members that have seized the opportunity. They they have carpeted the diem, and they've uh, by way of talk around jesperson.com sent us their rants, sent us you know what they need to get off their chest, and some of the some of them this week. I mean, you know, you know who I'm talking. You know, if I'm talking to some of them this week, I'm like, I can't read this. We have to draw the line somewhere. People are pissed. And so trash talk should be a good one today. But our heavy hitting real talk roundtable coming up in about a half hour from now. 
Uh, we'll talk to uh, Canada's natural resource minister, the Honorable Seamus O'Regan. We'll talk to Edmonton's Mayor Don Iveson. We'll talk to the chief of the Enoch Cree Nation, Billy Morin. A uh, great conversation about hydrogen, net zero developments, a new facility, more than a billion dollars, $1.3 billion right here into the Metro Edmonton region. What does it mean? What are the implications? How does a project like this come about? Should be a good one. Plus, of course, your contributions into our live chat. And as mentioned, I wanted to answer a question I had on Twitter here. This from Tim Best. A shout out to Tim and a good morning to you, pal. He says, Jesperson, am I right? Are we getting the Y Station question of the week poll results early? Are we getting them today? You betcha. We wanted to try something different this week. And so, you know, our question of the week, which you can catch every week. We thank you to the hundreds that do. Our question of the week right at the top of the bar at RyanJesperson.com. We've asked you how the uh, grisly and horrifying discovery of these 215 bodies, these young kids, children, some of those young as three buried outside this former Indian residential school in Kamloops. How is it impacting you in the sense of how you perceive Canada, how you perceive your role in Canada, your relationship with Canada, what reconciliation looks like, some really powerful responses and, and some really interesting data. And we wanted to make sure that we could get that to you this week. And so we appreciate the team at Y Station was up late last night uh, putting this together. I think about 650 of you in uh, in on short notice, about 650 of you uh, chimed in, which uh, you know means a lot to us. We appreciate that more than 100 a day. So coming up in just a second, we'll talk rural resentment. I want to remind you, of course, you're about one week away from Father's Day right now. And so you're coming up with a plan. And two of our partners are doing big things to make life easy for you. For starters, the team at Friesen Brothers. Now, you know, they have 16 locations now all the way across Alberta, where they've been proudly Alberta grown, Alberta owned for more than 65 years. Three of those locations, these are like flagship stores. The Stony Plain store, the Fort Saskatchewan store, and then the, the South Edmonton, I don't even know what to call it. It's not a store, it's an experience. Those three are where you're gonna be able to pick up these Father's Day boxes. You gotta order them in advance, order them ahead of time, and then you're basically almost your entire weekend, or at least your full Father's Day is covered from the cinnamon buns for breakfast, snacks on the way through the day, and then a great meal to throw on the grill featuring some amazing Alberta beef. You can link to the Friesen Brothers website right off ours. Just go to the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you act now so you've got your next weekend covered. Also, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road, their Father's Day cakes, the famous Dairy Queen cakes, the Father's Day cakes are five bucks off. If you name drop me, Jespo, or Real Talk at any of those six locations, and they want us to remind you that they're going to be collecting donations as they have done for years raising well into the large six figures, by the way, for the Stollery Children's Hospital Foundation. Shout out to the DQs of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Well, if you subscribe to Alberta Views magazine, like we proudly do here at Real Talk, you've likely already read Dr. Clark Bannock's piece, Rural Resentment. So it states no party is looking out for rural Albertans. Clark's a political scientist, acting director of the Alberta Center for Sustainable Rural Communities at the Augustana campus of the University of Alberta in Camrose. Good morning to you, my man. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Clark, I, I was, as I was saying to our audience members, I'm, I'm almost equally as curious 
about your process here as I am about your results and what you were able to determine. This was this to me sounds like um, I mean, obviously, you did a really deep dive here. You talked to a ton of people. You invested hundreds of hours. But it also sounds like a pretty neat, a pretty special opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm a political scientist. We obviously care about public opinion. Um, but the tools we tend to use when, when we're studying public opinion, the, the most, most obvious one would be surveys, right? We throw surveys out in the field. You can reach a whole lot of people very quickly and you can you know, find out what they think about issue X or, or Y or what have you. Um, but there, the, one of the most obvious drawbacks of surveys, of course, is you don't get a chance to kind of follow up and, and, and dig a little bit deeper in terms of what people are, are, are thinking and, and why they're thinking, you know, X rather than Y or, or, or what have you. So I, I came across a, a study uh, by Kathy Kramer, an American political scientist who kind of flipped things on, on their head and just set out to a bunch of rural communities in Wisconsin and showed up at, at coffee shops and restaurants, you know, unannounced and, and, you know, saddled up to groups and said, hey, can, can, I, can I talk with you? Let's, let's talk politics. I want to know what you're thinking. So, I, you know, I have, I have no problem admitting that I copied her, you know, wholeheartedly in terms of the method. And, and, and that's what it was. Just like, you know, I, there were 16 or 17 communities I went to. Um, largely unannounced. At one point, I did have to kind of lead on some community contacts to, to find some groups. But it was all about you know, finding, finding people in, you know, conditions that they would be comfortable in, right, with their friends, and then just listening. How, how are they talking about politics? What are the issues they care about? Why do they care about them? That, that was, you know, essentially the, the, the project. So you're, I mean, you're, you're crushing beers with softball teams, and you're, <laughs> you're at bond spiels, and you're at bingo halls and stuff like that, right? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. That was part of it. And I, I'll correct you, because, um, the uh, you know the, the the baseball team I, I I was with would 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 be aghast if you suggested they play softball. Oh, it, was yes. hard, it was an overhand hard baseball team, but but yeah, that that was the idea too to to, to find people of, of different ages um, and, and and such throughout rural Alberta in different environments. Yeah, I've got and, yeah, a, that was fun. <laughs> I've got a buddy that, that's played competitive ball in in New Zealand, and he always just he looks at me with such disdain when I understand uh, he he plays fast pitch. As a matter of fact, it's underhanded. But it's fast pitch. And so, you know, uh, just to be real for a second, the boys really chirp him about the underhanded pitches. But he's but he he at the same time is like, if if you'd like to stand right there, I'd be happy to throw a few your way and see how you like it. Maybe a little chin music. So I can understand, let alone the softball baseball thing. My bad. But this is all part of it, Clark. I mean, this is, you know, people come in and they can sniff an outsider. Right. And they get a little bit suspicious. Did you did your credibility help that you yourself are a rural Albertan shot? Yeah, you're a political scientist. And yeah, you're writing a piece, but this is you too that you're talking about. Yeah, so definitely when when I would when I would approach groups, and you know, my opening line was, you know, I'm from the University of Alberta. I'm studying rural public opinion. A lot of groaning, a lot of eye rolling, right? Like, who is this guy? You know, why why should we talk to him? But so, but that was my ace in the card, right? To be able to say, well, actually, I'm from rural Alberta too, and that's why I care about this. And that immediately opened doors. Like, there's there's no doubt about it. Um, there was a sense that, oh, well, I, I'm someone who's who's going to get them. Uh, no wonder he wants to listen. And, you know, one, once they started talking, that was one of the biggest thing, themes that came out of this whole project is, 
they have a lot to say and they feel that no one's listening to them, right? So once once they you know got wind that someone wanted to listen, they were they were happy to chat. Hmm. Okay, so there's that that's a common theme. Uh, that rural communities don't feel listened to uh, in a provincial context in so many ways as in a federal context. It's a theme that the prairies or Western Canada or Alberta doesn't feel listened to, generally speaking, depending on who you talk to. Right. Uh, and, yep. and depending, you know, what the government looks like, et cetera. What were some of the key sort of talking points that you noted? Were there any maybe misconceptions that that your interview subjects wished to address? I mean, were they looking to correct the record in any context specifically? Um, you know, to, to a degree, I, I guess the, 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 the chief findings, let me put it that way, that, that emerged out of this, um, once the once the conversations were directed towards politics, definitely, as, as you would guess, a lot of anti-Trudeau sentiment, right? That was, that was top of mind at pretty much every group I went to. Whenever we started talking about politics, that was the first thing, right? But that didn't surprise me. I knew that was going to be there. But much more interestingly, when you when you you sit and listen a little bit longer and 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 you know engage people in conversations that go a little bit deeper, once once you get past the anti-Trudeau stuff, two other things really emerge that are they're important to understand. One, there is a deep-seated sense that political parties of all stripes, okay, this isn't just about anti-Trudeau or anti-Notley or anything like that. Politicians and, and parties of all stripes are simply not listening to ordinary people in general. They're out of touch, okay? That, that's a big one that, that came up in basically every group. And then more specific to the rural context, this notion that, that you know, rural communities in particular are, are simply being ignored by, by governments. And, you know, tied up with that was this notion that urban citizens. Um, the, the perception is, you know, certainly don't understand what the struggles are, you know, what, what, what struggles rural communities are facing. Mm -hmm. And more than that, they certainly don't care. Mm -hmm. Right. So, the, you know, to, to the, if, if you, if you talk to the average, you know, rural Albertan, he would probably say something like, you know, to the extent that urban citizens are even thinking about rural it's probably to crack a joke about, you know, the country yokel on, on Twitter and move along, right? That, that's, the, that's the perception that, you know, no one's listening. They're kind of the butt of the joke. And, you know, why, why is that important? Well, you know, for one, this is deep-seated, like I said, and, and deeply ingrained. But, but more importantly, this, this notion that no one's listening and the resentment that grows out of that, these are the exact characteristics that, you know, scholars have found to be plaguing rural America and is very tightly connected to, you know, the overwhelming support for someone like Donald Trump. Totally. In rural areas, right? This Donald Trump is the anti-politician who shows up on the scene and says, I'm going to blow it all up. Mm. I'm going to listen to you, the ordinary people. It's mm. not going to be about the urban elites anymore, or the special interest groups or what have you. And so that's where, you know, this is, this is super interesting to me is that desire for that type of, politics, that type of politician runs deep right now in, in rural Alberta. And in fact, in the conversations, you know, in, in pretty much every single group, completely unprompted, at one point it came up that wouldn't it be great if we had a Donald Trump here? Okay. So like there's as, as, as wacko as that as sounds to, you know, other people about how can people, you know, buy into Donald Trump? How can they support him? There's a logic at play here for people who are struggling, who feel like no one's listening to their struggles. That, that's where there's an opening for someone like that. Yeah. 
I, uh, oh man, I have so many thoughts on this, but this is not, we don't bring you on to team me up so I can run my mouth. I mean, I, I always think with Donald Trump, the thing that blows my mind the most is that the support for him that remains in areas like the Rust Belt and the Midwest and all these areas is like, these are people that he has just stepped on for decades to rise. I mean, he did nothing. I mean, there were, there were some, there were some employment bumps in some areas where I guess I can understand, but for a guy that talked a lot about draining the swamp, I mean, all he did was pollute the water. I mean, that's all that guy did. Did. So I digress. I will say, Clark, what I think could be interesting is I bet you there's an appetite right now for an anti-politician in both rural and urban areas in Alberta. If you look right now, I mean, how could this government, the Kenny government with a straight face, talk about how they're any different in areas like nepotism uh, or entitlement? I mean, when you look back at the at, at the PC entitlement, that that whole sort of right. a thing where if you hashtag that in Alberta, you'd get a thousand stories from a thousand people. I mean, this government's right there so i bet you a bunch of albertans regardless of their postal code would be more than happy to see somebody come in and shake it up it'd have to be the right person but a compelling personality with experience and vision i bet you could win yeah i i i don't doubt that the the desire for the anti-politician the kind of the next step what exactly is the anti-politician selling beyond i'm not going to be sitting in the sky palace drinking jameson um (laughs) you know it 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 I think rural people might have a, a bit of a different take on what what they want out of that. Sure. And but 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 I think you're right. So what, what did you but when you say, you know, there are these assumptions and, and I, I mean, I do think it's important as well as you've acknowledged, you know, for, for the perspectives that they may have rural Albertans. And again, I, I'm saying rural Albertans. It's like saying indigenous people. It's like there's a whole right. bunch of different communities, a whole bunch right cultures, traditions, et cetera. Um, but when you start looking at how folks that are living in rural areas are telling you that there's a cynicism or a disdain or even a perceived disdain the other way from from people in the urban centers you'd also be including like mainstream media you'd be including post-secondary educators and academics and obviously i mean trump's big on this playbook but we see it even from this provincial government and others uh when you start to sow seeds right from from within the premier's office about the media start calling them the elites and the laurentian media and all these types of things then it doesn't matter what the academic voices are saying. It doesn't matter what the expert voices are saying, because there's already a barrier that says, I, I extend you no credibility, so I don't have time to listen to your message. Yeah, absolutely. And that those, you know, sub themes were there for sure. Again, like I, like I said, when I showed up and said, I'm from the U of A, eye rolls, groaning, right? When, you know, media came up, well, you can't believe that. That's the mainstream media. That's, right. That stuff is, is is there too. And obviously, like you say, that's being, you know, they're not just coming up with those ideas on their own. They're, that, they're you know, the, the, the current government and other, you know, voices are, you know, pushing those, those types of, of messages as well. What surprised you, Clark, about, I mean, is this, a, I mean, this government enjoys a ton of support from rural areas previous conservative governments have as well some of the bigger surprise wins i think in 2015 for the ndp were in rural communities and those proved to be the toughest ones for them to to hang on to you know tldr they didn't um what surprised you or or what was noteworthy with regards to the connection or lack of connection that these people you spoke with feel with the current government right just generally speaking, and this, you know, would require a whole nother show to kind of unpack, but I, I really do think that the relationship between rural Alberta and conservatives in general is, or conservative parties is, is quite complicated. It tends to be rooted more, more so in identity than it is in ideological right. you know, calculations. 
Um, you know, you grow up in rural Alberta, you're socialized to, you know, you're conservative, you're lean conservative. That's that's how it is. Um, you know, that I, I know lots of people in rural Alberta who, you know, they, they wouldn't even dare, you know, imagine that voting voting for a non-conservative party is an option, right? That it's it's almost like that would be, you know, you would be unrural, you'd be betraying rural in some way to to do that. And that's deeply rooted. It's really hard to shake. It's you know, it, it's kind of like asking, you know, an oiler fan to cheer for the flames, you know, and I, 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 I'm only being about 75 percent serious here. But that's that's actually how politics and our, our identification and, and connection to, to political parties works, rural or, or urban. So, you know, that's there that it, it's, it's complicated. A lot of people now are, you know, a bit confused about what to do next. A lot of people, again, are just like, screw it, I'm, I'm out. A lot of people are, well, I guess maybe Wexit's the other option because, you know, it's, it's for, for at least a, a swath of rural Albertans, it's, it's just a, a bridge too far to think about the NDP at this point. Um, and, and, and to be fair, you know, the NDP in, in, over, over their stretch in, in government didn't necessarily, you know, bend over backwards with an amazing rural development, um, you know, initiatives either. Um, I, I don't think they they necessarily had you know a fine touch with you know when it when it came to rural issues. Um, may, maybe they're working on that. I don't, I don't know. But in, in terms of the current government, yeah, this like this broad narrative, media narrative, often that you know the UCP is playing to its rural base. That's again, that's that's a bit tricky. A, a lot of the the symbolic things that 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 uh, you know the UCP is doing, the anti-Trudeau stuff, the you know. Laurentian, anti-Laurentian elite, blah, 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 that stuff, that plays well to the rural elites. Um, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is a lot of the actual policy stuff they're doing is hurting rural Alberta. And many people, many rural Albertans are starting to notice, right? And there's there's a, a real kind of uneasiness right now with the UCP um, among many in, in rural Alberta. Um, so it, it's certainly not the notion that you know, rural Albertans are, you know, putting on their UCP pajamas before they go to bed because they're so devoted to the party or anything like that. It's, yeah. it's, it's not that connected, even though, again, sometimes it's, it's assumed to be in, say, Edmonton. Well, it was interesting to see those those Angus Reid numbers uh, released earlier this week with regards to, you know, Premier's approval ratings and, and you know, the sort of that that question, if an election were to be held today, which, as we will note, it's not being held today. I mean, two years from now, are you kidding me? What can happen in two years? But, you know, the NDP, I mean, Jason Kenney's approval rating at 31 percent, the lowest of any premier in Canada, down from 61 percent when he was first elected for some context there. If an election was held today, people polled by Angus Reid, 40 percent said they'd vote NDP 31 said they'd vote UCP and here's the most significant number for me it's not the NDP at 40 it's the Wildrose Independent Party at 20 11 points behind the government that's pretty significant I I I agree wholeheartedly and that's again that a lot of that is rooted in this this deeper resentment like clearly you know that the anti-Trudeau stuff is there in in rural Alberta and that pushes people in in that direction but more so people are people are looking for an option that again, maybe not quite ready to go the NDP's direction. So what else is there? Well, here are these Wexit people who again are, are promising to blow it up to some degree, right? And that that's appealing when, when you again, when you're feeling that, you know, no one's listening to your struggles. Well, how, how what's a huge thing that we could do? What, what kind of sub- significant upheaval could we, you know, support that that might, you know, produce different results if we haven't got what we wanted the last 30 years. So I, I think a lot of that, again, is, is rooted in resentment rather than, you know, a calculation that, well, if Alberta's on our own, you know, rural communities will be better off. I don't think many people are, 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 are making that connection. 
I think you and I are, are being candid and I think that we're being fair. But if I were to note the tone, of, not the tone of the interview, but what we're talking about, if I was a rural Albertan, I'd probably go, I feel like I'm being painted a little bit as this kind of perpetually angry, alienated, you know, malcontent. Um, but that's not the sense you really got. I don't get that sense really from your piece. And I would imagine it wasn't a demoralizing exercise, oh, was it? Not, not at all. Just on a personal level, it was, it was really nice to do. Because, yeah. You know, everyone you sat down with is a, a warm, welcoming person. And, you know, I, I wrote about the politics because that's what I do. That's my job. But we spent more time, you know, making jokes and doing the local gossip and and stuff like that. And, you know, it it isn't at all that, you know, rural people are just running around out here with a permanent frown on their face. That's, that's, that's not the case, but when it comes to politics, there's this resentment there for sure. So what does that translate into? I mean, do you think that that translates ultimately? I mean, we, we see a bump with the wild rose independence party. It's, it's fascinating for me to see. I mean, just the, the, Man, I don't know if we have time to get into this, Clark, but just like the idea of like, you know, conservatives to and and again, I'm being very general and I'm being somewhat lazy in my commentary. But to get to the point, conservatives tend to understand that to achieve success vis-a-vis government, that they have to be united, so to speak. But it it proves to be very difficult to keep conservatives united. I mean, you know, I mean, this experiment, depending on what happens with this movement on the right in this Wilder's Independence Party. Uh, everybody's wondering what Brian Jean's going to do. Or there's some rumblings in the water. People are looking at maybe some conservative UCP cabinet ministers, MLAs that may look to making a move. I mean, th- there's there's really things that could happen here. Uh, mm. We could find ourselves in a very similar situation to what it was for the previous 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and make any make any predictions. I, I agree. Oh, with you. why it's, not? It's, 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 it's quite volatile right now, but it's it's been volatile on the conservative side now for, you know, 10 or 15 years, if you look back, you know, from from the moment that Ralph Klein was essentially booted out of out of office, however many years that was now, look how many premiers we've gone through compared to changes in government. Like right? six. Yeah, it, it, I think it's even more than that. It's close to seven or eight. It, you know, if you count people like Dave, Dave Hancock, who's you know, yeah. stood in there for a yeah, few minutes. Right? But, 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 but there's, there's been all kinds of volatility. And I, you know, I, I've, I've argued elsewhere that you can really map if you, if you go back across Alberta's political history. You can really map periods of, of of you know intense volatility quite closely with you know dips in the oil industry. To be perfectly honest, as, as soon as we run out of money, as soon as the boom is up and we're in the bust cycle, all of a sudden, you know those fiscal conservatives have their knives out, you know because we're we're running deficits. The you know more centrist conservatives. Who you know want who support you know by and large different you know government initiatives spending initiatives you know all of a sudden there's there's cutbacks there so they're upset and and the the, the kind of the the hard right and the center right you know start to come apart but when when there's money to you know um, keep taxes low and keep you know the budget more or less on you know running a surplus or, or at least not not a deficit while also you know spending spending big on on social services it's much easier to do that but when when the when the money's not there you know it, it's hard to keep everyone happy we're getting some really uh interesting comments on our live chat i appreciate people you know i mean 
<laughs> like I just people wear their hearts on their sleeves and just call them how they see them. And I love them like Jack on our live chat just says, why would anyone in their right mind vote for the NDP? <laughs> Jack just, you know, <laughs> boom, hand grenade thrown, right. uh, you know, but I mean, others, you know, Emma says, I mean, how do we talk to these Wexiteers in a constructive way? Because my mom says Emma is one of them. And I just, you know, Sandra, meantime, talks about Bill six. I mean, she says, didn't they bring in like a workers compensation bill when they first won? I thought it was very good for rural Alberta, but many neighbors sure didn't think so. Eric wonders how open some of these folks would have been. He says if it was a non-white woman asking about their politics in their coffee shops. Eric, did you what, what did you note on the sort of the, the, the social front? You know, I mean, we, we talk about like if, if, if a rural community in Alberta raises a, a pride flag, we're here in Pride Month right now. It's it's almost national news. Whereas and again, I'm not I'm not uh, smearing my fellow Albertans. I'm just noting what seems to be obvious. People can do their own Google searches and find it. What's far more common is if a rural community puts in a, you know, a pride colored crosswalk, someone's going to show up in their dually and, and basically leave a quarter inch of rubber on it and wreck it. I mean, that's kind of the stories that make the news. Uh, we're in Pride Month right now. We're talking about reconciliation, social justice. Uh, did, did you get into that? Um. Yeah. So back to what, you know, one of those previous, previous comments about, you know, if you would have been, you know, uh, uh, an indigenous woman doing sitting down, how, how open would, would people have been? Obviously they, they wouldn't have been because they, they didn't hold back with me at, at all. You know, I, I certainly didn't print everything that I heard. Um, but those, you know, they're, what do you mean? It was just blatant racism. Is that what you're saying? Oh, well, to, in, to, like, I, I, I want to be careful because certainly I, that, that wasn't, you know, the majority opinion. But did I hear, you know, racist jokes? Of course. But if I went to the, you know, refinery, refinery row in Edmonton and sat in the lunchroom, I'd, I'd hear the same thing. So I, I don't want to suggest I'm I'm I'm, you know, painting painting rural in this particularly negative, negative light. I, I think that. It, rural, rural Alberta is not as socially conservative as maybe a lot of people assume. There's been a lot of progress on a lot of these different issues. You know, is it, you know, have, have, have all these issues been solved? No. Um, but, hmm. I, I would say, like, just, just in general, you know, rural, rural areas, you know, tend to move a little bit slower around all these issues than, than urban ones do. But there is progress happening. And there, there's, you know, in, in rural communities, there are definitely, you know, pro-pride groups. Um, there, are, there are people in, in rural Alberta who are working really hard to, to make connection, meaningful connection with Indigenous peoples, working towards reconciliation, welcoming refugees, that kind of thing. That, that's all in rural Alberta. But, you know, there, there's the other side of it, too. Right. Just like there, just like there is everywhere. Really appreciate you taking the time to to uh, join us here, Clark, and to have this conversation. I was, uh, as mentioned, you know, we subscribe to Alberta Views and I love the piece. And um, I, I was uh, yeah, I was excited to talk to you about the process. I would imagine there's a lot of like as you you know, you're getting your you know, your wheels are all dusty. Right. And you're making your way from community to community and, and even just all the quiet moments in between where I would imagine you're. You know, you're sort of processing what you've heard and stacking that up against what you heard before that and starting to kind of form the piece and starting to write the piece in your mind. It must have been a really neat exercise. Yeah, absolutely. It was. And, you know, it, you don't need to be a political scientist to, you know, listen to other people. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, you know, back to that that comment about, you know, what, how do we talk to the Wexeters? You know, on one level, of course, that's really hard to do. Right. I'm I, I get frustrated, too, you know, but, you know, 
no, no one's going to, you know, change their mind or be open to new ideas and, until they've, you know, felt heard, right? Yeah. And that, that's kind of what it comes down to. And that's what this, this exercise was. And like I said, people, once they got over, you know, the, the apprehension of me, the stranger sitting at their table, once they knew someone was listening, you know, they could, they got to talk for hours. Um, and th- there's something beneficial in that process for everybody. I think hundred percent. I always quote Stephen Covey and seek to understand It's it's just such a simple principle, but I think it's a powerful one. Nice job on the piece. And, and thanks for making time to talk to us. Uh, Dr. Bannock really appreciate it. Great. Take care, Ron. Yeah. That's Dr. Clark Bannock. Uh, he's acting director of the Alberta center for sustainable rural communities. Uh, he's out in beautiful Camrose, have they have they uh, putting you on the spot? Have they said anything about BVJ? Is that it's not a go this year or it is Big Valley Jamboree? Sorry, thought I the, you, the look. Talking, I, I don't know. Who oh, you're Clark's talking still to, on. Clark, hey, no, I wasn't. No, but hey, are you? Okay, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I think it's been canceled. But I'll I'll leave you guys alone. I'll get out of here. No, that was actually that the was coolest. Amazing. That was the coolest thing ever, Clark. Thanks very much. I love that he's still hanging out. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I would imagine that it's probably not a go. Um, but who knows? Phase two, Alberta's phase two, is now a thing, right? I've seen some posts going up. People are talking about indoor dining again. So it says. Uh, I've never referred to it as BVJ. It's always just been Big Valley Jamboree. Yeah. But, um, so I just learned something. Postponed to 2022. 2022. Okay. Uh, BVJ is always such a good time. Have you ever been to one? No. Oh. I have lots of relatives because uh, my mom grew up in Killam, Alberta. Yeah. And I've got a gajillion cousins out there. There were eight kids in my mom's family. So yeah. Lots of farmers. And yes. Are you uh, are you a fan of of any form of tailgating? Would you would you see the social value in tailgating? Well, that's um, yes. (laughs) You had to put some thought into whether or not. Would you like to ask me the same question? Yeah. So, Ryan, are you into tailgating? Yeah. (laughs) Yep. BVJ is like a it's like a I don't know how many people are there. Lots. Lots. It's like a twenty five thousand person tailgate party. I mean, I've driven by. I've been in the vicinity when it's happening. So I've I've seen the spectacle. It's incredible. Yeah. It's it's either something you're really into or something that's like not so much your thing. It's one of those, you know. And uh, hey, man, that's oftentimes what makes for great experiences. Right. So uh, shout out to everybody that tunes in. Not not just in Camrose, Alberta, where uh, Dr. Bannock is at the Augustana campus of, of the University of Alberta, but but also our our friends that tune in across you know western canada rural communities across the country and beyond would love to hear from you on this talk at ryanjesperson.com i bet we're gonna have people that are like well we just got painted and portrayed like a bunch of hicks like 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 a bunch of hillbillies right like you know we're not all a bunch of racist rednecks you know that was that was really unfair conversation i don't really like the way that went it's not I'm just predicting some of the feedback we're going to get on this. It's it's interesting to talk to Dr. Bannock and get a sense of, of where he's coming from, where he said, you know, as you know, if it would uh, an indigenous woman or, or a, you know, a journalist. Do you say journalist of color? That sounds, sounds weird. But, but you know, a, a visible minority, um, you know, would, would a journalist, you know, would, would a male journalist wearing a turban um, going around rural Alberta get the same reception, get the same invitations in? And it's a loaded question because you're saying, you know, what if? Well, and also like are more than a million people all racist? It's kind of like, whoa, easy. Obviously not. The answer is obviously not. And he goes, yeah. And he sort of said, but yeah, there were some racist jokes and yeah, this, that and the other. And what did he say? If you went into the where you'd get it too? he said something like the refinery, the refinery, you'd get it too. And you know what I was thinking as soon as he said that too is is you'd also get it in boardrooms. 
right? Like, I, I don't think, I mean, people are demanding to be better and corporations are, you know, doing, being challenged to have, uh, you know, the view around the boardroom table better reflect what society at large looks like, mm. you know, both a- across the, the gender spectrum when it comes to equal representation of, you know, all of the communities, all of the diverse, um, you know, the, the people that contribute and form our communities. But I don't know that you could say that right now we're at a point where you could say we've solved things on, on the social justice front or we've solved things on the equality front in the urban centers. And now we look to our rural neighbors to do the same. I don't know that that urban folk are in a position to really look down the noses. There may be some attitudes more pervasive or perhaps more publicly acceptable in some rural areas. But do we really think everything's got it all figured out and sorted out in the cities? No. I, I I wouldn't say so. I think that, you know, there are social problems no matter where you go. You know, where people are, there will be social problems. Yeah. But I'm not saying that racism is okay. It's not. And I don't think anyone's saying that. But I don't know. I just, I found it interesting in that conversation saying like, yeah, the, there were lots of jokes like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that was hard to hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish... I wish we were better. <laughs> I yeah. really do. Yeah. And I, I know that it's like, it's the othering, right? It's what people don't know, what they're not. But, and, but then again, you know, Clark mentioned that there are folks there. Are, and we spoke, we've spoken to a number of folks in the rural areas that are BIPOC, people of color. and Totally. So, I don't know. Good conversation. I, li- I, I like that you're in a position where I, where I hope that... that many people are after they consume content here on real talk where you're just kind of like i don't know you're going to kind of sit with it for a bit think about it and if that's you and if a you know an hour or a day or a week from now you have something to say about what you heard you know where to find us talk at ryan we'd love to hear from you we're going to get to our real talk roundtable in literally one minute first let me remind you that at landscapeedmonton.ca you can see the amazing work that the team at eden landscaping is doing i mean they're doing it right now they've got multiple crews out and about turning dreams into reality but they've been doing this for more than 20 years so if you say, well, I'd love to do this, but I have this issue, whether it's drainage or, you know, a big tree or whatever the case is, they're problem solvers at their core. It's what they're proud of. I talk to Mike about that specific thing. He's going to try to help us out with an issue in our own yard around drainage. I said, do you do this? He goes, buddy, we do it all. Check out Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Also a big shout out to the team that powers this studio at Westworld Computers. Daryl and his family have owned and operated this business for more than 40 years. They've seen it all when it comes to the Apple, the Mac lineup. And that means their service techs have as well. They're taking appointments at westworld.ca or you can walk right in observing all the protocols, making sure it's a safe space for you to check out how you can ramp up your tech game. And if you're investing in something new, bring in your old MacBook, your old iPad, your phone, whatever the case may be. They'll transfer over all your data for free. Check out westworld.ca. Big news on the uh, the sustainable energy front. I mean, this is huge. How much have you heard people talking about hydrogen? Well, a big announcement here for the Metro Edmonton region a $1.3 billion project receives the go-ahead. It's it's a big plan to build a landmark net zero hydrogen energy complex right here in Alberta's capital city. 
The Honorable Seamus O'Regan is the federal minister of natural resources. Don Iveson is mayor of the city of Edmonton and Chief Billy Morin joins us. Chief of Enoch Cree Nation. Thanks to the three of you for being here. I want to give you each an opportunity to comment on on why this is significant. Then we'll talk about how a project like this uh, comes about. But Mayor Iveson, this is the type of announcement I, I'd suspect a guy like yourself likes to be able to make. Well, after all of the work that we've been doing for many years to uh, prepare our industrial lands for a variety of different kinds of industrial activity that we thought was coming. Um, and so in the Orem uh, Energy Park, and there's been a bit of confusion around this, uh, people uh, are hearing and thinking that this is somewhere out in the counties. And quite honestly, when we were working on this and the hydrogen hub for the region, um, I, I assumed that most of this investment, if not all of the, the big industrial investment around hydrogen was going to land out in the counties. Um, but in fact, Air Products has chosen a site in Orem Energy Park within the city limits of the city of Edmonton. So we'll contribute to our industrial tax base. Uh, it was made possible by you know, I, I'm really proud of some of the bridges that we've built and we've had our challenges with bridges in this city over the last few years. But the one in in uh, on Orem Road actually opened up this investment. So all of the city building that we've been doing, including in our industrial areas, has contributed to helping land this major industrial investment with billions of dollars of upside for future expansion, which the president of the company alluded to in the announcement. Uh, so it's huge for Edmonton. Uh, uh, from a tax base growth point of view, from a 2,500 plus direct construction jobs, several hundred more induced jobs uh, from that. We need that shot in the arm for economic confidence right now. But here's the thing that's the, the coolest from my perspective is that um, there are a lot of different ways to make hydrogen and we need to make a lot of hydrogen uh, over the coming generations to reach our energy transition goals and get to a net zero economy, not just here in Edmonton as part of city council's city plan and energy transition plan, but globally. And so there are massive international markets, billion, $100 billion export opportunities in the coming years for uh, clean Canadian hydrogen. Um, and this uh, is a technology that is new in the world People have been making hydrogen out of natural gas for a long time, but to do it on a net zero basis um, is unprecedented on earth. And so uh, it's uh, new life for uh, fuels that we produce today that have a carbon challenge, but that we can car uh, decarbonize. Essentially, it's like refining or upgrading the natural gas to strip out the carbon. We've got great geology to sequester it and a legacy of infrastructure to allow that to happen. Um, and uh, so we can produce net zero hydrogen that the world needs to make the energy transition. And right here in Edmonton, we can run things like uh, hydrogen buses, which we just greenlit the purchase of two for testing purposes this same week. Uh, we can produce power. We can amend it to the natural gas supply. All these things rapidly begin to reduce our GHG emissions when this plant comes online and that fuel becomes relevant to the city of Edmonton and to Edmontonians and to the oil sands and other industries that will be able to use it to accelerate de their decarbonization and help us reach our Paris Agreement goals. So it's kind of like check, check, check. Jobs, green, tax base growth, uh, and it's going to unlock a huge amount of innovation in the energy space, which is our bread and butter. So, um, so it's a very, very hopeful announcement from my perspective.
Minister O'Regan, I, I had a conversation with uh, with Dr. Koskinen out of the, the Haskane School of Business, University of Calgary, uh, just a couple of days ago. And he's talking about transitioning to a net zero economy. We're talking about that paper that just came out net zero by 2050 and and, you know, uh, ambitious or otherwise. What it is, uh, does it actually look like practically? And, and and if I can summarize his general message, which is always dangerous because I'm not the guy with the Ph.D., but but he essentially said that Canada's got a long road to hoe, like Canada's a little bit behind the curve, didn't describe us as a lost cause by any means, but said we've certainly got our work cut out for us in contrast to some other some other uh, economic leaders on, on you know planet Earth, essentially. Uh, how important is this project when it comes to the federal government's goals over the next couple of decades? First of all, first of all, the premise here, I mean, there is no democracy in the world that has the natural resource wealth that we do. Uh, within within two generations, we, we figured out how to get oil out of sand and became the fourth biggest producers of oil and gas in the world. Uh, I'd like to brag, uh, as, I often knew, as I often do on this show, uh, about you know, my corner of the world in Newfoundland and Labrador, where our offshore is only about a generation, generation and a half old. And the president of ExxonMobil Canada has told me there is no more harsh environment in the world that ExxonMobil operates on, uh, in, in the world than the Newfoundland offshore. We're out there. We're doing it. So I do not discount the determination and ingenuity of the Canadian energy worker. Uh, our job really is to make sure that government incense uh, where it can using carrots, sometimes using sticks, and make sure that we, we you know, direct the market and direct investment to the right place in this country. But we've got a lot to brag about. I think we're in a pole position, to be honest with you. We have demonstrated what we can do. And now we just need to do that again as we, as we you know, lower emissions, as we build a, a low emission economy. It's going to require the same workers. Hydrogen, as Mayor Iveson and he and I have been talking about this for some time, um, you know, hydrogen is, like he said, it, it, it ticks off every box, mainly because it's in our wheelhouse in two very important respects. We have lots of natural gas for blue hydrogen. And that is a key part of our, of our national hydrogen strategy, which we announced back in December. And we got the workforce. We got the know-how. We got the people who understand the complex engineering. And in some parts of the country, particularly Alberta, we've got a lot of infrastructure in place that may be able to work with hydrogen. Now, the newer the equipment, the newer the pipelines, for instance, the better the chance that it can it can be used for hydrogen. So, you know, we're all in. Um, but, you know, I would say this, uh, and, and we're all keenly aware of it. Um, the disruption that we knew would come to the energy market has come very quickly. You just alluded to the International Energy Agency report on net zero. It was a report that uh, we helped, we commissioned. We asked them to do it, the Canadian government, one of many. But but we said, what's net zero going to look like? Now, remember, the IEA was created, and I just did a meeting with them yesterday morning. The IEA was created after uh, the oil crisis of the 70s to make sure the world has enough oil. So when they come out with a report to say, we think the world has enough oil, Okay, so it certainly gets your attention. We dispute some of the things, uh, or you know, minorly dispute some of the things that they arrived at, but that's very important. And then, you know, just in terms of disruption, ExxonMobil Canada, or ExxonMobil, I should say, worldwide, their board of directors, um, you know, they they saw uh, quite quite a disruption on their board of directors and, and replacement of directors because they felt that. Uh, uh, ExxonMobil was bearing its hand on net zero and on climate change and was devaluing the company and therefore investor return. 
Uh, Royal Dutch Shell issued a court order saying you got to do better. I mean, 40% reduction in GHGs within the decade. Um, Chevron, you had a, Chevro- a shareholder revolt. This change is happening. So, you know, on the flip side of it, look how quickly we're working on things like hydrogen and air products investment here. I mean, this is, you know, this is uh, outstanding. So the market's moving. Government's got to keep up. Uh, that's a big part of our challenge. But I think Canada is in a pole position. Chief Moore, you're, uh, um, you know, I mean, in addition to obviously your, your role as uh, Enoch Cree Nation chief, also vice chair of the Edmonton region hydrogen hub. Uh, what got you? I mean, what piqued your interest in hydrogen in particular? And, and you know, through your lens, why is this project so significant? What, what are you most optimistic about here? I got tired of talking about just TMX. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, uh, I say that cheekily, but there's a lot of truth to that. You and me both, pal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is a support group. Trust me. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) Um, Well, what what piqued my interest, of course, is is we we at Enoch uh, uh, have a really strong philosophy of of building a a framework of collaboration in the capital region. And so, you know, Mayor Iveson, uh, Mayor Natchew, and uh, the mayor of Fort Saskatchewan, the mayor of Lamont County, the mayor of... uh, 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 multiple other mayors and another First Nation uh, sit on the hydrogen hub. And so I really love the collaboration piece of, of, of making it a regional thing, because in addition to being the chief of Enoch, I also live in the city of Edmonton. I'm a proud Edmontonian. Um, I'm also an Albertan. I'm also Canadian. So at the end of the day, like the mayor and the minister said, this checks all the boxes. Um, I would still say, though, that there's still kind of an unclear path from the First Nations perspective on what's next. So, you know, um, yesterday's announcement or two days ago's announcement with Air Products and, and the city of Edmonton and uh, the three levels of government, um, that was three levels of government, but well, um, sometimes maybe First Nations could be categorized as a fourth level of government or whatever, however people view that. And there was still yeah. no release for us specifically in that. Um, I'm not saying that every announcement has to include one Indigenous community or the Confederation of Treaty 6, but I'm still um, looking forward to developing the path of where First Nations fit into this. And I do see it as kind of like a green slate of, of a new uh, resource development aspect that we could learn from maybe in the past uh, that First Nations still hold a lot of distrust and discontinuance with the regulatory process that was developed. We can develop something really, really cool here um, to build upon some of the things that uh, have been outstanding for decades and decades. Chief, let let me ask you, uh, and and Minister, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. But first, uh, Chief Moran, I'd love to hear what that specifically looks like to you. I mean, my mind immediately jumps to an equity opportunity and obviously maybe some sort of a jobs and training partnership, obviously meaningful consultation on all things environmental and infrastructure. But I mean, is there more to it than that? What would the partnership look like to you? And then we'll have the minister respond. Well, I, I, I got to be a little bit pragmatic and selfish, too. So, you know, like Enoch is 2,600 people at City of Edmonton is 1 million. And the, all the other counties have bigger populations than us. So, you know, just for Enoch to say, like, we get a huge equity portion of private sector pro, uh, um, developments. I don't, I don't think that's actually quite fair in terms of business, which is universal language. So, you know, what I would like to see is a little bit more of entrepreneur support. Because even in Enoch, too, we can't own as the First Nations Chief and Council every single business that on the nation. It's just not a sustainable development um, philosophy. So, you know, for me, if the federal government can maybe uh, sit down with us, uh, in addition to all those other levels of government, and, and see how Indigenous people can be supported in the industrial heartland more as entrepreneurs, that's, that's, I, I think that's the more sustainable way. Minister, how, what would it look like from the federal government standpoint, or how would you respond to what you just heard? All over it. I mean, uh, and thank you for that, Chief. I, 
First of all, a bit of background on me, um, just so you know where I'm coming from. I grew up in Happy Valley, Goose Bay, Labrador, and um, uh, from here in St. John's. And when I moved there, I had not met uh, anybody from a First Nation before or uh, an Inuk before, and it had uh, it was profound for me. So. Um, when I worked with the provincial government, I sat and worked with the Justice Department, uh, negotiated at two tables. I did my undergraduate degree in uh, indigenous mobilization against economic development that they didn't want, but I did my master's on indigenous participation in natural resource development. Um, and my conclusions, I mean, it was 99, so, you know, uh, it would be dated now, but hardly surprising and not much has changed in this sense. Equity where it's possible is, uh, is in- incredibly advantageous because, you know, having that sense of ownership back returned to First Nations, Inuit and Métis people, I think is really important. But that only works, and, and this is, uh, you know, the, I think the chief would appreciate this, but, you know, I came to the conclusion as, a, as an outsider, albeit a neighbor, um, you need capacity. You need people who, you know, in in in, in the leadership, um, you, you need you need them to be able to deal with the, you know, large economic development. I mean, we have a hard enough time dealing with it. Um, so so you got to make sure you build up that capacity. We are willing to do both. We are we are setting things up to do both. Chief, happy to talk to you about it. I mean, the you know the Canada Energy Regulator, um, for instance, has now got you know a whole new. There's a depth and capacity there to to meet Indigenous people um, on it. I mean, we. You know, although I know we're sick of talking about TMX, you mentioned Chief, but I am proud of this. I am proud that, you know, we finally, uh, at least in the federal government's point of view, got the environmental assessment process process right. And uh, um, that, you know, the, the federal court of appeal said, OK, you know, you got it now, we think, uh, and in a unanimous decision where, you know, up until recently, uh, you know, and literally I faxing, you know, uh, faxing a, a, a check, a, a list of boxes to, to check off and not even getting a response and then assuming that response from that in, you know, indigenous community that received the fax um, is therefore acquiescing the development. I mean, this is that's archaic and that's only a few years ago. We can do better. So you got to have meaningful accommodation or, or meaningful consultation in the spirit of accommodation. And, uh, and that, I think, you know, we're nailing that down. We're not getting it right. It's not perfect every time, but it's important that the process is right. And in terms of equity, I mean, we've, we've been very clear. It's something that we're looking at with TMX. It's something that we could look at with other projects as well. Uh, you know, I'm a, you know, day, dating back 22 years. I'm a big fan. Chief, I wanted to give you a chance to respond quickly if you'd like. Yeah, uh, I think what the minister is saying is, is is good. So it's just balance at the end of the day. So uh, I want to advocate for entrepreneurs in private sector within the First Nations communities themselves. But ultimately, again, he's going to capacity. Um, and again, like 2,600 person community. Um, we have no shortage of opportunities thanks to our great relationships with the city of Edmonton and the Capital Region. I actually think it's a great time to rebound from COVID and the economy here. I, I get excited, but again, it kind of comes down to capacity and manpower. And so, yeah. you know, again, I think it's just going to be um, building those relationships with those two levels of government. And, and quite frankly, there's a third level of government here that we're missing in this call. So, um, you know, the, the communication ain't the strongest. I get it. But maybe the First Nation could be the uh, one of the bridges that brings all three levels of government together to to do. Mayor, I was sorry, Chief, I didn't mean to step on your toes there. Uh, we're getting some feedback on someone's computer. If we can, I don't know, whatever, Sam, maybe we can try to sort that out behind the scenes. But Mayor, how does this come about? Like, help help us understand. So you're here. I mean, the municipal government's sitting here this morning. The federal government's here this morning. And of course, we have Chief Moore here representing uh, Enoch Cree Nation. Um, how does a deal like this come about? How do the different levels of, of, of government cooperate? I mean, is, is, is this purely an initiative between the municipal and federal level? What role did the province play in this? 
Well, I, I, I can't and won't speak for the government of Alberta, especially in these days, because I've been giving them a pretty hard time about housing policy and some other issues. Um, uh, uh, and I just want to back up on on the indigenous inclusion element for a moment here to say that, you know, 2,500 construction jobs is good for the extended Edmonton metro economy, including our indigenous communities from which many talented tradespeople and technical experts uh, come and, and, and have great expertise in the legacy energy economy in Northern Alberta and, and will have an opportunity to be part um, of the economic bonanza that I think is, is possible to be on leashed here on hydrogen. Uh, in terms of how this came to, and I would just say that I also think that we are going to need pipeline infrastructure for uh, liquefied hydrogen to get to the coast, to get to those export markets. And maybe this is a pipeline that the whole country can get behind, that Indigenous communities can uh, be vested in uh, participating in. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the Eagle Spirit pipeline from a few years ago, I thought was a really fascinating concept. I think if we can figure out what the hydrogen version of that looks like and perhaps bring the government of Alberta and their billion dollar fund for indigenous energy entrepreneurship to the table. Uh, you know, I do think to, to, to Chief Moran's point there, there are ways to bring everybody together here uh, and achieve uh, economic goals, environmental goals and reconciliation goals. Well, we uh, uh, reboot the economy of, of northern Alberta to support the energy transition and achieve those climate goals. Now, the way this comes about is that um, uh, we have been working with uh, um, companies like Air Products for many, many years through Alberta's industrial heartland. So Air Products is not new to this region. They've actually been producing hydrogen here uh, for many, many years. So this is an expansion to them building on that relationship. And the mayors in the industrial heartland uh, have been nurturing all of those industry relationships and looking at the opportunities as those traditional industries decarbonize uh, to keep the industrial heartland relevant into the future. Um, the uh, uh, federal government's uh, hydrogen strategy for Canada, which has a very clear emphasis on the Edmonton region hydrogen hub has been fantastic. The funding provided from the federal government to support this hub, uh, which includes the heartland mayors I mentioned, as well as chiefs, uh, um, Morin and Arcand, uh, as well as industry leaders and academics and thought leaders who are gonna help propel this transition at a faster rate than if the market did it on its own. So it's still market um, market driven, but with acceleration. And so the federal government's hydrogen strategy has really helped unleash that. And then credit where credit's due. Um, the provincial government's uh, petrochemical diversification program and some uh, grant dollars from uh, their their own carbon pricing initiative, which they don't necessarily call that, but they do they do have heavy emitter pricing and have for a long time. It's actually great Alberta leadership across many many administrations. Uh, Fifteen million dollars from that. Um, um, emissions Reduction Alberta, which is funded by carbon pricing uh, on heavy emitters in Alberta, uh, is also going into this project. So ultimately, notwithstanding that there are some challenges with how particularly, uh, from my perspective, I could I could see the tensions and, and, and trickiness unfolding. I think, quite frankly, our air products was playing the feds and the province against each other a little bit on this. But at the end of the day, we got to we got to a place where all orders of government are at the table um, and where there's this is just the first of many such investments. I'm aware of four other significant multi-billion dollar hydrogen investments 
uh, in the pipeline, so to speak, for this region, not, not all of which will land in the city of Edmonton, but I'm not upset about that because those jobs will benefit every Edmontonian, uh, every Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, community member in this region uh, because it is the economic hope and uplift that we desperately need. And having all orders of government pulling roughly in the same direction on that is what achieved these results here. And we need more of that. Minister, I want to I want to ask you about some more specific stuff and, and, and on whether, you know, what's in the pipeline makes it easier to build a pipeline these days, your opinion. And, and then I want to get to some some comments here on our live chat. But I want to touch on what Mayor Iveson just just alluded to, because the conversation I had right before this roundtable was with a political scientist mm-hmm. who wrote a great piece, uh, traveled rural Alberta, spoke to more than 130 people. And, and he said, you know, there, there's there's definite tones, there's definite trends when you talk politics to rural Albertans. And he said one of them was a disdain for the federal government one of them was that bruised trudeau brand that's that's been the case in alberta for let's say 50 years how important is it i'm asking you to answer candidly here like i know you have before and i know you're capable of how important is it that the federal government gets some credit for this in alberta i think it's important that people know that we're working hard for them um, you know, and I think it, it's not always easy to get that message out. Uh, you know, I, Ryan, I do, I do your show. I do a lot of radio. Um, I think that with everything that I just described about, you know, what's been happening around the world, I think that one of an, another big game changer is having a president in, in now in the United States who is, it's a 180 from, from the president previous on issues about climate change, on issues about energy. Um, not saying we always agree all the time. I mean, he made that very clear, obviously, uh, early on, but uh, with with Keystone. But um, but our overall, our, his administration and our government's very much aligned. Having said that, they are upping the game in a major way on hydrogen and in other ways. And and I think that I mean, I, I can only I, I'm I'm out here in Newfoundland, Labrador. You know, again, we rely on our oil revenues more than Alberta does. So I got skin in this game. And I think, you know, the, the impression for people out here is that the world is changing. We we got to get with it. We're not, you know, we still have four platforms out there that are, you know, three of which right now are producing steadily and, and doing really well. And we've got a fine product out here, a very, you know, very low carbon per barrel product. But, you know, people are looking at diversification and looking at other things that we could be doing as well. Hydrogen is one of them. We have uh, we have an Australian iron ore company called Fornescue that is, you know, looking at a significant play because of the hydroelectric capacity in this province. And when we developed the national hydrogen plan, you know, it was it was, uh, you know, you grow up in in Labrador like I did or here in Newfoundland. You know, I think the same for many people in Alberta. You, you don't want a cookie cutter, one size fits all federal government program. We didn't want that with a hydrogen plan either. And we and we don't have that. I mean, we've got green where it works. I think it's going to work in my province, certainly will in, in, in Quebec and, and in B.C. But we have a wealth of, of natural of natural gas reserves. Um, and that's one of the areas that we dispute the IEA report, because we think natural gas for hydrogen, for blue hydrogen in this respect, is a massive play. So I don't know, Ryan. You keep plugging away at it. I think that enough people, you know, here anyway, are realizing that this is not, you know, a Justin Trudeau anti-oil thing. I mean, the markets have moved. They are moving. Um, you've got an administration. You know, the U.S. is our is our strongest ally and our, our closest friend. They are our biggest competitor. I can tell you that since we announced the clean fuel standard here, a new Canadian fuel standard here in Canada, the first refineries to tune up to that have been American refineries to sell back to us. Uh, they move. 
they are they are fast and they are putting a lot of money into this. So we got to keep up the world. You know, the world is changing. The good news is, like I said, again, we've got the natural resources and we've got the know how we've got the workers, we've got the people. Oh, oh. So, you know, we, you just keep plugging away at it. There, there's a lot of politics involved, but I will I will also say this. Uh, on the issue of energy, look, the premier was with us at the announcement on hydrogen, um, and people should know that because the world is changing and because energy is the energy market globally is so disrupted, we do work well together. You know, behind the scenes, there are a lot of people in the Alberta government, my department and my office. We work very closely together because we have to. This is just too big. You, you know, Canada is the fourth biggest producer of oil and gas in the world. The world is looking at us. You know, how, what's Canada going to do? We're transparent. We're open. We have high ESG standards. The world is looking to us how we react right now and how we move. I want to ask all three of you this, uh, Chief Moore, and I want to start with you. Uh, you know, in your capacity as vice chairman of the Edmonton Region Hydrogen Hub, I'm sure you're, you know, you're up to speed on this. You're, you're certainly way more educated on th- than this than I might be. One of the trends I'm, I'm noticing here, which is interesting in our live chat, people talking about how this is good. I mean, it's really good news, but it's not the end game. Like Chad, who's watching this morning, he, he says, you know, the clock is ticking when it comes to climate change. Do we have time to transition to hydrogen or do we go full bore on actual renewable energy options? Kaylin's watching from Vancouver right now, says this is really interesting, um, says hydrogen seems like a step in the energy transition. Certainly it's net zero, but it's still not renewable. She says it sounds like a good investment for now, but I wonder if it's the smart long term play. I want all three of you to comment on it. But Chief Warren, how about you first? I want to back up really, really quick to uh, Mr. O'Regan's comment and the question you asked him. You know, my first social media post on one of the comments this morning was um, somebody from a First Nations perspective picking on Justin Trudeau and saying, you know, he's just he's just like his dad. And my comment back to them was a actual chart of the uh, the funding partnerships that we've had since uh federal liberals came in in 2015 it is night and day like it is night and day um, compared to previous governments so you know i said this might not be your popular viewpoint but truly if you look at the data it's 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 night and day so we we, we've we've benefited from way more better partnerships and financial resources under the federal liberals and it's not it's less about the politics of the past and what's going on right now and into the future so you know i think again um you know just as i'll take my chief hat off and put a but uh, just an Albertan, Edmontonian, First Nations person, Canadian hat on, I would vote for the party who puts the rhetoric away and probably just starts, you know, still even aggressively um, um, building bridges, like like just less, 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 less here, less there, less uh, extremism and somebody who actually has a platform of bringing people together. Like, I, I don't know, again, we're all in politics, but um just thought that that was interesting, the comments you made to him. And again, it starts at the leadership level, too, because I didn't mind making that comment to that person on social media. It's the truth at the end of the day. But going back to your question, Ryan, about, you know, where is this going? Should we be more aggressive? Should we be less aggressive? I, I think we, again, we live in Alberta. Um, this one checks off all the boxes. This is natural gas. This is a lot of the same principles of refining oil and gas in the heartland. I, I, I think the 2050 goals are, are, are pragmatic. I think they're, they're real. And again, um, uh, I think there, there, there's enough momentum there to, to do it in a good way. I, I think we're, we're moving forward with enough momentum at this time. And uh, I, I think it's just a milestone thing. Maybe we check in about 10 years if we're really beating those milestones or not. I don't, I, that's not the best answer, but um, I'm really satisfied with the amount of, of work with this one at the start of it. 
Uh, Mayor Iveson, what gives you the confidence that that hydrogen's the right play here? I mean, you're you, you know you're getting into what people might describe as you, you know you've noted you're not seeking re-election anyway at the municipal level. You're getting into legacy territory here. Um, are you comfortable with the hydrogen play, or, or or do you think we could stand to be even more ambitious? I'm not asking you to cast shade on this big new shiny announcement. But is can we be even more ambitious? Should we be even more ambitious? Why this one? Why does this make sense? So we need hydrogen um, along with a variety of other pathways to get to zero carbon. Um, and each one of those pathways, by the way, does have trade off and consequences. So, you know, electricity uh, produced through hydro to make um uh, hydrogen through electrolysis uh, has the environmental impacts of of the damming, and so uh, and and likewise uh, renewables, uh, solar and wind. There's the footprint of the um, uh, of the panels and the the mills and and all of that technology required to produce the electricity. Now, those are not reasons not to do those, but you have to count those in, just like you've got to count in the full life cycle costs of this approach to making hydrogen. But versus burning natural gas today, which is CH four. And so you get a nice pop off the, the four. They're their, their, uh, hydrocarbons. Remember, the hydro is the hydrogen, the carbon is the carbon. If you can use technology today to strip the sea out and bury it underground and, and successfully sequester it for the long term, um, then you can take those hydrogen atoms and you can do all kinds of helpful things with them, which when you burn them, produces water vapor with no greenhouse gas emissions. And it's particularly helpful because it's bottleable and portable, which makes it an ideal transportation fuel. Uh, electrification works for certain kinds of uh, transportation applications, but for long haul trucking, you can't have enough batteries on the truck to make it work. So something like hydrogen, and there's a test starting right now with long haul trucking here in Alberta, that's gonna use hydrogen from plants like this to decarbonize the transportation system. Likewise, shipping in the long run needs to move from bunker fuel, which is the lowest grade uh, kind of uh, marine diesel with an awful emissions profile to hydrogen. Also, um, this, this is a neat example, the Genesee power plant, which is actually the last power plant the city of Edmonton built back in the Edmonton Power Days, uh, then became EPCOR, now is Capital Power, a great uh, company doing tons of renewable and decarbonization work based here in Edmonton. Uh, that power plant as part of the, the coal phase out transitioned to, to gas and people are very quick to point out and say, well, now you've got the problem of this legacy gas plant for the next 30 or 50 years. And that's got an emissions profile, which is too big for our, carb our planetary carbon budget. So people are saying, what are we gonna do to decarbonize the natural gas space? The answer is very simple. We need to blend in more hydrogen to it. And the new turbines at this plant will take a 30% hydrogen blend today. And it's future-proofed against a 95% blend with some modifications. And so we can actually decarbonize existing parts of our economy today by injecting more hydrogen into things that we're already doing. That accelerates uh, the the reduction in emissions, which buys us room in our carbon budget. So I'm of the view, some people are a bit puritanical about this and say, well, you can only get hydrogen from this one place and you can only get electricity from this one place. But if you only do those things and you can't scale them fast enough and you say, well, we're not going to use technology like this, which is 
some people would argue is transitional or interim, but I think uh, I think there's a lot of runway for net zero hydrogen from refined natural gas that is fully decarbonized on a net zero basis. Uh, I think that's absolutely got to be one of the pathways. And if you look at the Edmonton Region Hydrogen Hub business case around this, we need to rapidly scale up hydrogen production at the same time as we make sure that there's demand for it to help tip it over. Um, and you need that to establish that critical mass and plants like this help us do that while the renewables uh, and other technologies evolve to be able to long-term meet the world's hydrogen needs for transportation, for heating, for um, uh, for for a myriad of other applications. electricity generation. Yeah. So absolutely, I think hydrogen is critical to the energy transition. It's it's a big part of the city's energy transition plans. And as the minister has said, it's it's rapidly part of the world's energy transition plans. You know, in Japan, that the, they're not asking where is the hydrogen from? They're asking how much can you get us and how fast? And I want us to be selling it to them. Minister, is it is it easier to to create the infrastructure, necessary infrastructure around this? Maybe easier is not the right word, but are there fewer barriers or is there more implied uh, environmental credibility? Uh, what have you when it comes to necessary infrastructure, whether that's pipelines or anything else? Ryan, I am not dodging the question here, but I really need to go back to talk about uh, a few of the comments that were made earlier and some of the comments that were made in your chat room. And I will be candid. Uh as I am with you, and generally speaking, it uh, doesn't always, I don't always, <laughs> doesn't always curry favor. This is all about lowering emissions. Like we gotta get rid of the implied morality of renewables versus hydrogen versus oil. Like we gotta get rid of that. The only thing that matters at this stage of the game is emissions. That's all that matters. Hydrogen is zero emissions. So we're going to look at it, as Mayor Iveson pointed out, where we can electrify things, including, uh, it, you know, we're looking particularly 18 wheelers, maritime transportation, hydrogen fits the bill. So, you know, in, in the case of, 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 of wind and solar, yeah, absolutely. But, but hydrogen is a play there as well. Lowering our, our emissions in oil and gas, oil and gas is going to be with us for quite some time. Even, you know, the International Energy Agency said that. So how do we lower emissions? Carbon capture sequestration is going to be key for that. It's going to be key in order to make sure that, you know, hydrogen right now, blue hydrogen is actually with CCUS currently about, you know, 90% efficacy. And, you know, Minister Wilkinson has told me that we think we can get it close to 100. That's a huge leap forward. So there is no one panacea to this. It's a whole scope of things. I've gotten into trouble uh, talking about nuclear, but I make no apologies for it. It is a zero emissions energy source. It is good for base load power when, when you know, uh, wind and solar can't be reliable. We got to look at all of this. And on nuclear, I mean, you know, I would say once again, Canada is a tier one nation. Our can-do technology continues to be exported around the world. We're really good at it. It would be foolhardy not to look, continue to look at small modular reactors and invest in that and, and to look at nuclear. If we are serious about one thing and one thing only, and that is lowering emissions as quickly, as urgently, but as orderly as possible. Like we still got to make sure that the economy runs. We still got to live, you know, today, tomorrow and next week. So, you know, our, we are the fourth biggest producers of oil and gas in the world. It is a massive part of our economy. It is the biggest export in the country. How we go about this urgently but smartly 
is the real challenge for government and industry. And I mean, listen, my hat's off again to the Oil Sands Alliance, getting every major player, getting on board with net zero. I can tell you firsthand that was not the case a year ago. Uh, it is the case now. I think there's a clear recognition of where investors are going and they are divesting from areas that do not take combating climate change seriously. We are now saying to the world that we do take combating climate change seriously, not only because it's, you know, it's an existential threat, but also it's where the market's going. It's where the market is going. It's how people want to make money. It's how people need to make sure that they realize their investment. And listen, I got, I got faith in the market. When the market moves, that means that the change that we need is sustainable, but it means the challenge for government is keeping up. Minister, let me circle back and I'll put it in the words of Scarlett, who's chiming in on the live chat. She says a pipeline is still a pipeline. It'll be interesting to hear how this might be any different. She says with regards to environmental disruption or what have you, I mean, trees are still going to be cleared. There's still going to be construction sites, says I'm curious how the minister will answer it. Oh, I think, look, let's be frank. Pipelines are much more than the physical pipelines. If we were going to measure, you know, what it takes to move molecules from one part of this country to another, from one part of of our country to the United States, if you're looking at the environmental impact of that, of moving those molecules, find me a better way than a pipeline. Yeah, but that's uh, what people you know, have when, been saying. I mean, you, you've got cars, you've got railways. Sure, I mean, you but can they, do it those ways. But let's, but let's people be don't frank. buy what that argument about though. here is the product in the pipeline. It's become a lightning rod for, for wanting to, to, to change and change, perhaps I would argue, in some cases too quickly. Like we do have to be urgent in our action uh, to reach our net zero goals, but we got to make sure we do it in an orderly way. Otherwise, you know, it gets very it gets too disruptive for people. I want to uh, I want to make sure that we're not missing an angle on this. And I recognize that we've not real. I mean, I don't want to take for granted that something may be implied, uh, but obviously it would sound to me like this would be a great opportunity for some uh, retraining for some people that have been either underemployed or unemployed for quite some time, but that are skilled workers to to sense real opportunity here. All three of you are community leaders. Chief Moran first. I mean, uh, you know, does this when, when you're looking at sort of the big news here or when you're going to be having community conversations, one-on-one over coffees i mean are, are jobs going to be one of the things that you think is is, is really going to resonate absolutely so you know but i do go back to that capacity question we we full circle back to that about half hour ago we were talking about so my last conversation yesterday was with grant McEwen, and uh, we're trying to build local relation our relationships with the local universities so you know it i didn't want to go like a you know a high level discussion about you know let's have a fun conversation about cool economic development projects i said let's get down to some real tangible business here and the one i bring up was hydrogen i said look it's in the news yesterday um you guys have our, our best bcoms on enoch creation are from grant McEwen. is there not a capstone project that we can do together so you know you take the opportunities in front of you you take the bridge building that you already did and uh, jobs and opportunities are going to be uh, the primary focus because, again, it's 2,600 people in my nation and then 1 million Edmontonians that elect us. So we we're, we still want to get elected. Well, maybe the mayor doesn't right now, but <laughs> see how that goes next. But And the last one I want to build on what Mayor Iverson said, the city of Edmonton is doing a Indigenous procurement strategy um, for, for city procurement. You know, I, I, again, this is still a standing conversation, but I wonder if if the city of Edmonton would be open to, in that strategy development, if a hydrogen plant was being built, can they build procurement into the development processes of those types of things? So, you know, there's no shortage of opportunity here. And I know the city probably opened to the conversation. I don't know where it goes, but it's it's still a good region to be a part of when it comes to indigenous jobs. Mayor? 
I always appreciate uh, Chief Morin's creativity and, and we have a long-standing partnership agreement and memorandum around economic development ranging from tourism uh, uh, to to the energy economy um, and and housing and mutual aid and and so I would see this as consistent but in this case it's the private sector building the plants uh, but the city is going to need to adopt a ton of different technology uh, and build its own skills base uh, of people who can fix hydrogen buses over time for example. And so as we need evolving skills, to your point about retooling the economy, uh, there are opportunities to make sure that that is inclusive. People talk about a just transition to a low carbon future. I'm not a one of I'm not one of the folks who says, well, you got to pick a lane, like either you're working on climate change or you're working on reconciliation. If you have too many priorities, you'll never get anything done. I just I'm so tired of that kind of cynicism. We need to include everybody in a just transition to a lower carbon future so that all of our great grandkids can get along. And um, and I think we have leaders uh, here on this call who are interested in that kind of change and, and prepared to grapple with that kind of complexity. And then what it looks like on the ground is is your sustainable, sustainable procurement initiatives, as, as uh, Chief Morin mentioned, uh, and, and other partnerships going forward. And then also encouraging, you know, so when the city does its procurement of the hydrogen, we're asking um, our, you know, our vendors, for example, on many, many categories of things the city buys with, with public dollars, um, how how are you supporting inclusion in the economy of women and BIPOC folks, for example? Where do you source your material from? And, and that's how you build an inclusive economy, including in the, in the space of energy transition. So uh, I do think um, it's a lot to thread all of these needles, but I, I don't like choosing, you know, as some people kind of zero sum these things to say, well, you can have a low carbon future or you can have an inclusive future, but you can't have both. Yeah. I think if we're not trying for both, what are we here for? So, uh, so all to say that uh, I think it's all achievable. It is a moonshot, but if we if we know that that's our focus, is uh, the kind of economy we want, the kind of environment that we want, the kind of society that we want as Canadians, as Edmontonians, as neighbors in this region, uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous working together, uh, we can achieve all of those things. And that's been what the city of Edmonton has stood for for the last seven and a half years on my watch. And I hope that that will continue. It's it's interesting. Ryan, could I interject? Yeah, of course. Moonshots are great things. I got I got flack last year for, for talking about moonshots on net zero. Moonshots not throwing spaghetti against the wall, right? Moonshot is when when Kennedy said we're going to the moon, and the entire industrial military complex of the United States directed itself on a focus and a goal, and they got on the moon. So, you know, I'm big on moonshots. Our moonshot right now is net zero. Mary Iverson is absolutely right. Forget the myopia. You know, um, for, and and to the chief's point, you know, let's do the bridge building. Uh, you know, last time I was on your show, Ryan, I was telling you the story about how, you know, Minister Savage texted me while I was still in Rideau Hall after just getting sworn in, hadn't even appeared in front of the cameras yet, saying, when, she come, when are you coming to Alberta? Yeah. I was on a plane the next day and had many trips before uh, before COVID hit. So big believer in that. Some things are just beyond politics. Uh, the energy uh, industry in this country and the economy are just too important. I live that fact every day here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We've got, if you watch the news from here, you know, it's constantly about energy. It's constantly about our oil industry. It's constantly about hydroelectricity. And if you read the news today, you're talking about, you know, a possibility of a big hydrogen play here. So it is, it is constantly on my mind. But if we don't have an inclusive future, we will miss out on the best talent. That's the most, and we can't afford to lose out on good talent. Um, we can't afford, we got to get, you know, the, 
I hate using the words just transition because it just sounds so disruptive to people being people got enough going on, especially in a pandemic. But like, how do you retool people to the next project, building on their experience and their expertise in the energy industry so we can start talking about hydrogen and so many other things? And we have huge opportunities with First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities in this country. Um, you know, they are there, they are on the ground. And, you know, I've been to places like uh, uh, Cigar Lake, uh, you know, the, the massive uranium mine there in northern Saskatchewan, just to see, you know, not only the fact that 50% of their miners themselves are First Nations. And, and I stayed in First Nations communities there was just before the pandemic hit, actually. Um, but also the fact that everything from the airline to the air services to security, this was all, you know, they had fostered indigenous companies to do this work. I can tell you that natural resource companies in this country, whether it be in oil and gas, mining, I know firsthand, having dealt with this 25 years ago with impact benefits agreements for Voices Bay and other mining projects in Labrador, where I grew up, they're on the forefront of doing this. Um, got to do a better job, got to keep at it. But you also, I think, now have an, an increasing number of, of, of First Nations leadership like Chief Moran that, that want to play ball. And But, you know, so long as these projects continue and are conducted on their terms, on terms that they are not just comfortable with but can lead. And can I just add one more thing, Ryan, real quick, which is that, I mean, I am all for the long-term transition to, and, and, and medium and as soon as possible transition to a lower carbon future involving a variety of new technologies that we're just scaling up now in the renewable space. I think there's a space for SMRs. I think we, to the minister's point, I agree. The objective has to be how do we crash emissions to zero so that we don't scorch the planet. Um, and by any means necessary, by all the different technologies. It just so happens that the technology we're talking about here today uh, isn't sort of science fiction that requires a new set of skills that we have to develop in our economy and in our workforce today. This is going to put iron workers back to work who built things that look like this for the last several generations in northern Alberta. It's going to put power engineers back to work. It's going to put boilermakers back to work. And those tradespeople uh, from all walks of life in this region, and again, I mentioned there's many, many skilled Indigenous trades who've, who've been developed very strategically and systematically around the oil sands work. This is work for those people today. So frankly, those folks who are suggesting that we shouldn't be doing this, I, I, I think I, I think we have to. I think we have an. I think there is a moral obligation around employment for those folks, so long as we are achieving that uh, crashing our emissions profile objective, which this project does. So to me, it's a, a both and. That is uh, the economic shot in the arm we need, while at the same time accelerating our trajectory on emissions reduction, so we can live within the carbon budget that we need to desperately balance as as a city, uh, as a province, as a country, and in the world. Uh, gentlemen, I'm, I'm really grateful for, you know, your willingness to have this extended conversation here to let it breathe and to, to explore, you know, the different levels of what this means and the implications. Um, quite frankly, we didn't even get to talk about BVJ or tailgating. Well, do you I mean, want to? I mean, are you are you a tailgating guy? I did it a couple of times. I got to say, I enjoyed it. It was at a it was a it was in Buffalo at a Bills game. It was a different cultural experience for Newfoundlander. Let me tell you, we'd never. We might go to cabin parties, but I've never tailgated before. Anyway, it was what's a great the big? Uh, what's did the? Did you do the Bills Mafia jump through the table, Minister? <laughs> no, I did not. No, I, maybe on my third go around, but the first two, you know, I just kind of maybe wanted to stay on the sidelines and see how it's done. What is that, Charlotte Billy? Fondo. Billy, is that like a is that like a belly flop onto a table? Is that what it is? 
Absolutely. That's the Bills Mafia. So I'm a big NFL fan. My tailgate experience was at Denver, but I've definitely got to make the Bills Mafia my next stop. So I was just curious if the, bill, uh, the minister jumped through a table there. Yeah. No. I, I would think that there's something about, um, you know, not to stereotype, you know, regions of Canada, but I think that uh, Newfoundlanders and Albertans, um, you, you know, we've, we're sort of kindred spirits when it comes to being the life of the party. And sometimes it works out well for us and maybe sometimes not so much. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised to hear if you had done the, the, the what, what's it called, Billy? The, the Bill's Mafia table flop? What is it? Yeah, it's just Bill's Mafia. Just Bill's they Mafia. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nobody we would, just don't talk about it here. Can I, and can I just put a word in? I mean, look, uh, Newfoundlanders and Albertans, I mean, it's this longstanding tradition, not yeah. just talking to one another. We, you know, we are a sizable part of the workforce out there. We help build build up, you know, what Alberta is now is, you know, and building up Canada, the fourth biggest oil producer in, in the world. I mean, we are intertied, let me tell you. And even through the pandemic, you know, the rotational workers that continue to go through, go from my province out your way and back again, uh, it's it's really something. There are very close and very real ties between our two provinces. We we have, I think, definitely raised and built each other up. Um, I, I want to end on a, on a serious note, and I always I always really enjoy talking to the three of you. I have, I have three community leaders here, um, and, uh, and I want to leave room for for some focus on on reconciliation we're going to be talking right after i sign off with uh with you chief mayor and minister we're going to be getting into our question of the week presented by y station we've asked our audience members uh if and how their perception of and relationship with canada has been impacted or has changed as a result of the discovery of these 215 bodies outside a Kamloops Indian residential school, a former school. These are 215 children, some of them as young as three years old. The nation is broken right now, heartbroken, I should say. And and 54 percent of audience members that contributed to this, more than half, told us that they feel differently about their relationship with Canada as a result of the discovery of these graves, these children buried in unmarked graves, undocumented in Kamloops. Chief Morin, our audience members through this survey told us what reconciliation looks like to them. They told us how they're grappling with this news. How are you? Where's your head and heart at today? I'm, um, uh, I'm, 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 two generations removed from residential school. My grandparents went and uh, my boys are three generations removed, my sons. And um, I guess I'm lucky in that way. Um, but that said, my grandma phoned me up at 12 o'clock when that news broke at 12 a.m. She's 80, she's uh, 83 years old and um, she just needed to talk. And, um, you know, I just, try to empathize the best I could with her and said, you know, I try to think about if what happened if my four-year-old and my six-year-old got taken away. And I just, it's really, really tough to do. Um, but my relationship with Canada, um, it, has it changed in the last two, three weeks? Um, I guess I got to be honest and say, say no, it, it really hasn't. It's just brought to light um, a lot of things that uh, haven't been discussed. Um, a whole bunch. Um, you know, when I talk about reconciliation from my perspective, I often say, you know, Indigenous people have to reconcile with uh, themselves as an individual first, their family, and then their community, and then Canada. 
So I, re- I really like focusing on that internal Indigenous community reconciliation. And for our community, we, we started doing that in the last two weeks, uh, uh, highlighted by the 215. We had a great um, ceremony run by uh, grassroots people here in the nation. And we had so much support from outside sort of, uh, people coming in. Um, but I guess my relationship with Canada honestly hasn't changed. And uh, I, I guess I'll do the full circle thing here. Um, there's, there's still, I'm still a proud Canadian. Uh, I'm chief of Enoch, I'm Billy Morin first, but I'm still a proud Canadian. You know, I was reading an article yesterday about somebody wanting to cancel Canada Day, and I just I just couldn't bring myself to agree with that. Like I, in Victoria, I think the city of Victoria was saying that, and I just couldn't bring myself to agree with that. I can't, that's, that's my natural go-to. So, you know, I thought about, you know, as, as simplistic and maybe as juvenile as it sounds, like I still cheer for Team Canada two weeks ago. Um, another person talked about all the veterans that fought for the, the country. That is still something to be proud of. Um, so, you know, you kind of just take it one day at a time moving forward. Um, this is still a great place to live. I don't think my relationships changed in the last two weeks, but it'll probably change over time um, from the Canadian perspective and we'll just be all better for it. So, you know, if I want to do the political thing too and bring it back to the hydrogen context, um, I'm looking at a screen in front of me that says the hydrogen hub ERH2 leadership team. I was not on the um, heartland industrial team. There was no place for First Nations. I was not on the team to develop oil and gas or First Nations weren't there, but now we are. And so, you know, I I take the wins as they come. Um, That's a simple act of reconciliation in this. And uh, I do have hope for this country moving forward. I really appreciate that, uh, Chief. Mayor, I, I know that you've made announcements. Uh, people have been paying attention to what the city of Edmonton's plan is. Uh, in particular, you, you stated uh, what the city's doing currently in a, in a period of listening and reflection with the art, the mural, at the as it's named right now, the Grandin LRT station. That's one thing that publicly uh, you've been able to discuss. But, but at a personal level, where are you at now in, in, in the context of this question that we've asked our audience? Well, I spent a lot of time last week uh, connecting with Indigenous community leaders, uh, elders who I've worked with and known and and respect and appreciated uh, learning from so much over the years uh, and who I I wanted to check in one on on how they were doing. Some of them are are survivors themselves of, of residential schooling. Um, and also get a sense of, you know, what, what were they hearing in the community from Indigenous people? Because I think the first and important takeaway, building on what Chief Morin said, is that this is not news for Indigenous Canadians. Many other Canadians are tuning in for the first time to how horrifying this country's legacy of cultural genocide, exemplified but not limited to residential schooling, was. Um, Bodies were discovered at the Edmonton Indian Residential School, which is in St. Albert technically, um, but is in this region uh, and is now where Poundmaker Lodge is. Bodies were found there before, not in this number. Um, and, And it is known by oral history that there are many, many unmarked graves. And this is why one of the acts of reconciliation consistent with a number of the calls uh, to action in the TRC is to thoroughly examine all of these sites to determine all of uh, the graves. And there are very likely many, many more. And this country is still atoning for that and atoning for 
the spiritual and cultural and physical and sexual violence perpetrated against more than 100,000 Indigenous children over the legacy of, of residential schooling. And that reverberates to this day. And I, I contributed an op-ed to the um, to the Edmonton Journal that I'd encourage Edmontonians to take a look at, which draws a link um, first to the fact that the the, the racist and and derogatory stereotypes about Indigenous people are, are not fair because the Indigenous people who are alive on this land today survived multiple repeated organized and sustained attempts to eradicate at minimum their culture and their language and their dignity in the process, if not their lives, like these 215 children's lives were lost. And so the idea that there is something lesser around uh, being an Indigenous Canadian is actually upside down because the folks who are here today survived all of that and may in fact be some of the most remarkable and resilient human beings you will ever meet if you get a chance to get to know them as I have. And so starting from a position of strength and resilience, understanding that, in, that still Indigenous Canadians are overrepresented in so many of the statistics that we are working to, to, to deal with, to bring justice to, to reconcile. For example, you're twice as likely to live in poverty if you're an Indigenous family versus a non-Indigenous family in this city. You're four times as likely to go missing or be murdered if you're an Indigenous woman versus a non-Indigenous woman in this city. And you are 10 times as likely to experience homelessness. And so when I'm advocating to senior orders of government, the federal government's been incredibly generous and, and transformational in their interventions around housing and their commitment now to end chronic homelessness in this country. When I am driving relentlessly at that one piece of unfinished business in my mandate here, which is to end homelessness, for me, it's an issue of reconciliation. And so justice in this country will be served by righting all of those wrongs of, along a variety of, of different policy fronts where tangible and immediate action is required. And I will call again today on the government of Alberta to step forward and assist with providing the embedded supports to leverage the federal aid dollars for supportive housing, uh, which are on the shelf right now because I can't get Ottawa to check the last box on our grant applications. We lost out on $68 million for 420 units, all the COVID relief construction jobs, and most importantly, the housing for an overwhelmingly Indigenous population. Though not to discount that we have veterans, child soldiers who are refugees from other parts of the world, LGBT, LGBT2S, uh, Q plus kids who are all of whom have trauma, which is a contributing factor to their experience of homelessness and their addictions and substance dependence challenges. Embedded supports in that housing will solve homelessness for those folks, address reconciliation in this country. Um, and so I'll continue to press for that uh, because I, I, I do think there is unfinished business righting the wrongs of hundreds of years of colonial practices um, in this country that have created untold harm. And Canadians are finally tuning into that because of these 215 children's bodies. And it's time to take action. Mayor, I appreciate that. Uh, Minister, obviously, 
I mean, you're here as a representative of, of the federal government. You're also a Canadian uh, at a human and individual level. You know, I, I spoke with Angela Green, who pulled no punches uh, of the Indian Residential School Survivors Society earlier this week. She was very critical of the federal government's track record on reconciliation. Uh, Angela White, pardon me, of the uh, Indian Residential School Survivors Society. She she. she Describe, quite frankly, the prime minister as a wolf in sheep's clothing when it comes to the relationship of the federal government and indigenous people. Um, there's the vote, the non-binding vote in the House of Commons it goes unanimous. Prime minister doesn't attend. Senior cabinet ministers don't attend. What impact has this had on you personally? And, and how does it impact the role that you hold as minister? And, and then, of course, uh, accountable to your fellow Canadians. I'm gutted by it. Um, uh, you know, telling you that story about growing up in Labrador. Uh, when I, when we, my father and I um, uh, arrived in Labrador for the first time, and he'd been there many times. My dad was a, a judge there. He was appointed a judge. Uh, so he had gotten to know the indigenous community. So I was 13 and I met uh, the leadership of the Indian nation of Labrador. And you never forget that because, you know, you're, you're 13 and you had never met somebody. I mean, Newfoundland in the, in the, in the 70s and early 80s, my idea of diversity was Protestants. Uh, I say that glibly, but, you know. So to meet somebody who was so different from me. And then a week later, dad drove me to Sheshashit, which is their community. And one of the only communities that you can get to from Happy Valley Goose Bay. And uh, I could not believe what I saw. I could not believe how differently people were living, neighbors were living, and the circumstances in which they were living. And it has motivated me, uh, my professional life, I mean, in my academic life, um, in my own way of just trying to figure out what we could do. And I have just felt that my part in this, and it continues to be, it was as his Indigenous Services Minister, and it is here, was to focus on capacity building and economic development. I just, I have just consistently poured myself into the work. Um, this causes you to, it just motivates you more, I guess. And we, you know, Minister Miller and Minister Bennett and the Prime Minister have all said that this is not the time for us to tout a record I'm deeply, you know, appreciative of Mayor Iveson's remarks. Um, but I think it's just now is the time we listen. We just got to listen. And we just can't give up on working together and with one another and creating something better in this country. You know, that has fueled us. And we, you know, we have got a lot to atone for. Um, but I do not give up. I do not give up. And I'm deeply grateful for... Uh, Chief Warren's comments, um, and I think our role right now is to listen, to realize that this is, we are going to have continued shame, I think, in the next little while as the country focuses its mind on this. And I think that, frankly, the more people get behind what we need to do in this country in order to build bridges and to raise Indigenous people up, 
um, and to allow them, you know, in what we do with child and family services when I was minister, to allow them the ability to, to, to take, to allow them to give them back the responsibilities and rights that they had before we got here and, and allow them to take control and to lead their communities and to do a better job than we have. It's Federal Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, Enoch Cree Nation Chief Billy Morin, and Edmonton Mayor Don Ivis. And I'm grateful for the three of you taking that question. The reflection, the candor is much appreciated by our audience, by myself, and I know by the people that will hear this podcast later. Congratulations on the announcement as well. I know that there are reconciliation angles there, and we'll continue to have these conversations. We appreciate your time on this. We took you into overtime, and I suspect we've potentially created some schedule complications, but we're very grateful for it. Thank you for this to the three of you. Well, speaking of speaking of reconciliation and tailgate parties, we'll have you guys over to an Elks game one of these days. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait. There we knew Bill's Mafia, the Billy Morin Mafia at the Elks game. But the I am in. There. I'm there. I am in. There. Billy, I'll bring my own table, man. I'll bring my own table. We'll just do it. It's going to be unbelievable. I think. I, I think if we can do the T-shirt toss, like saying together too. Oh, right? that'd be a that'd be a nice trade-off. Yeah, I'm eager to get into. That. I've been starting to work. I've been starting to work the arm again, getting ready for the T-shirt toss. Mayor, how do you how, how do you guys feel? Real, I know. I keep saying you got to go. I love the rebrand. I think they did an amazing job with the rebrand. You like they it? Did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Looks yeah, awesome. Like yeah. And what it's, are you going to say? It's super, it's super fresh. The feedback's been phenomenal. I love it. Uh, and and I checked in with Natan Obed, the uh, head of the National Inuit Organization, uh, who was a very thoughtful advocate for addressing the need to achieve some reconciliation around the, the team's historic name. Mm-hmm. Um, and he thinks it's pretty sharp too. So uh, he, he's gonna get some gear as well for him and his family. And uh, I'm just really proud of where the team got to in the end. And, you know, I, I know there are still some fans uh, who, who are who are concerned about the change and, and unhappy, but a lot of people now that they've seen it, they're like, you yeah, know what, I can get behind this and they're really getting into it. So, yeah. um, so, and, and I think in light also, I mean, just to bring it back in light of the conversation we've just had about the 215 uh, uh, children in, in, in Kamloops, I think again, um, non-Indigenous uh, older Canadians are, are starting to tune into this question and, and say, well, what can we do to support reconciliation? And yeah. there are many, many things that we need to address that have not been fair or kind in the past. And, and this change to our football team's name uh, is, is one of them. So Elks Charge. Elks Charge. Love it. Much Elks respect charge. to all three of you. Thank you for this. Have a wonderful weekend. And thanks for your time. Into overtime, we'll note again, 15 minutes past when we asked you. That's Minister O'Regan, Chief Morin, and of course, Mayor Iveson. Thanks to the audience members that, that have taken the time to chime in on this. I, and and I, I drop in on the live chat as frequently as I can. And I see what you're talking about. Some great comments about, you know, what, what, what would look like bold vision to you when it comes to a net zero future. Um, I see that Mark Doran's been, been pretty vocal on our live chat today. Mark does great advocacy advocacy when it comes to orphan wells in Alberta. He's been on the show before you can find it. Uh, Mark says there wasn't real talk on the show today uh, because I, I don't think we got to the, the angle that he wants to take when, when it comes to uh, the energy regulator, which is a conversation that we can continue to have. Um, 
I defy anybody to tell me we're not having a real talk on this show. Are you fucking kidding me? But Mark, I'm grateful that you're here and I thank you for the comments. You can hold my feet to the fire as much as you want, but you find me a show that has more real talk than this and I'll tip my cap to it. Come on. We're about to do. We're about to get to trash talk in like 20 minutes or whatever it's going to be. You show me anybody else doing that. Um, I digress. Oh, a little sensitive, Jespo. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe just a little bit. The teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge want to remind you that they have the best selection when it comes to the Jeep and Ram lineups of any dealership in the province. If you're heading out into the great outdoors like I am this weekend, why not do it in the brand that's been trusted since 1941 to get you to wherever you need to go? That's Jeep getting set to roll out its brand new Grand Wagoneer, the toast of the luxury class SUV. That's the Jeep Grand Wagoneer at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Plus. The best haulers out there, the Ram lineup recognized across the country as the cream of the crop. The team at Kubi Energy wants to remind you that they are scaling up to meet customer demand. I had a chance to talk to founding CEO Jake Kubiski yesterday. An amazing story on how two Real Talk partners are teaming up to address environmental concerns around cryptocurrency. We've got a segment coming up. It'll be in a bit. We just had Adam O'Brien on a while ago, but turns out the teams at Kubi Energy and Bitcoinwell are working together for a net zero Bitcoin mining operation. It blew my mind. Jake says, oh, we're doing all kinds of cool stuff. He says to me yesterday, anybody and their dog is installing solar right now. But there's a lot of reasons why Kubi's most trusted. Number one, they're Tesla certified. Number two, they've got electricians and electrical apprentices doing all the installs. Jake said, if your audience has any questions about why they should go with us over anybody else, have them give us a call. Check out kubienergy.ca. Our hashtag, RealTalkRJ, powered by the team at Park Power at parkpower.ca. If you use the promo code 2021-RealTalk, you know the drill. They're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill. Commercial, residential, Park Power, a community contributor in a number of different ways, including their profit-sharing agreement where they support charities in the communities where they live and work. Kim says, Mark got under Jespo's skin today. I love it. It's Have you noticed a few times this week? People are starting to people are starting to just say it. And it's fine because people have identified they've identified a, a crack in the wall where mm. they can get to me and they say that wasn't real talk. <laughs> that interview wasn't real talk. And they've they've identified they've identified it's the, it's the kryptonite. That is Jespo's kryptonite right there. <laughs> That's it. The thing that I want to know is you said everyone and their dogs. I'm like, what? I need to get another dog. Yeah. To, you have a, your dog's a little bit lazy. Not, not up on not, the roof. Not up on the roof. Uh, or the roof. Um, <laughs> see what I did there? I did. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Um, installing solar panels. I mean, Ranger, up your game, my friend. But Jake's telling me, like, you'll, you'll literally, you know, people will go on Kijiji and be like, who's installing solar panels? It's huh. like, is this, like, people are up on your roof. People are running wires. People are connecting into, like, battery store. Like, really? Uh, anyway, I digress. Jake only pays for 30 seconds a day. He's only getting 30. Se- I'm just kidding. But a great. I, I can't wait to have Jake and Adam talk about this net zero thing, because, you know, like yesterday it was yesterday, too. That wasn't real talk on cryptocurrency. That wasn't real talk. We got like a Forbes columnist on. And uh, and uh, anyway, but but we're talking about that. And, you note, and this is not a secret. You know that when people talk about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, they talk about the environmental impact of mining, of mining the coins. And if you're going to go, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. That's when you can get in touch with Bitcoin while they can explain it. Or you could do deep dives on Google like I do in my off hours. But 
Um, that's one of the big things is the environmental concerns around it. And Jake and Adam have partnered up to say, what, what can we do about this and how can we address this and be innovators? Right. I hate to say think outside the box because it's actually all inside a box. Uh, thinking inside the box will be, I guess, what we'll call the panel discussion. The panel. Dis- oh, my gosh. They're just they're just landing in my lap as I reflect on it. And it's just pissed up. Pe- OK, I apologize to everybody. <laughs> I apologize. Apology accepted. OK, Heidi says uh, good panel. She says, I'm not shocked, but still disappointed that the minister gave a non-answer to Ryan's question about the reconciliation vote. Um, you know, I'll acknowledge, you know, Seamus Oregon's not on the show to talk about that. Doesn't matter. As far as I'm concerned, if you're a federal minister, I had an interview with a provincial minister while going to the NDP government. Um, and uh, and it got it was it was in studio and it got pretty spicy. Um, I won't name names. and I'm not in the mood to start picking fights again because it took a while for the waters to calm. Um, but we took a, a phone call, a live call, and it was a hot call from an advocate who put the minister on the spot and just went upside and down the other. And the ministry could see the steam coming out of their ears and the interview wraps and we go to commercial break. You used to be able to go up and like go pee and grab a coffee during the commercial break. I wonder what that's like. I wonder what that's like. I can't remember what that's like. Come to think of it. Gosh, were we lazy back then? We didn't really do anything. Got paid well for not doing much. Um, but in all seriousness, the minister was, I mean, I, th- I don't want to say furious, but furious. And we get up and the minister stands up and looks at me and was like, what was that? And I'm like, that was a live call. Like, you know, I mean, you just sort of say like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for it. It was like, yeah, man, like, you know, get on the bull, see what happens. Like when you walk in the radio studio and we're taking calls that can happen. And the the, uh, the disgruntled uh, sense continued for the next little bit. And I, and I finally just said, hey, listen, as far as I'm concerned, if you're a provincial or federal minister, you better be prepared to take fastballs high and inside. Like I'm not you know, if you, you like if you want a tipsy toe in the tulips. I was going to say maybe you should be at a and then like name another job. But that why would I do that? That's a brick move. Let me just say, if you're going to be a federal minister, you can take tough questions. And so Seamus O'Regan, I, I mean, I, you know. I appreciate his candidate. That's a personal perspective. He can't speak on behalf of the prime minister. But of course, I'm going to put the question in front of him. It's something we've been talking about nonstop. How about Chief Morin? His grandmother in her 80s calling him at midnight to just talk. And you wonder how many of those conversations are occurring, like thousands, probably. People impacted, uh, influenced, traumatized to certain degrees based on different interactions or or impact or the fallout from this this legacy. And I use that in the worst sense of the word. Our question of the week this week, presented by our official research and strategy partners at Y Station, asked you how you're processing the discovery out of Kamloops. And again, every time I say that, every time I use the word discovery, or every time I use the word the news out of Kamloops, I want to acknowledge every single time, in case this is the only time or the first time somebody's tuning into Real Talk, it's not news, it's not a discovery. Maybe technically it's a discovery, but survivors, elders, community members have been talking about this for decades. You would be right. But what we can all agree on, I think, is that this has shaken our nation. And when I use that word, I'm talking about its citizens, its people, the people that have been here before it was Canada, the people that are here now, regardless of how they would characterize 
themselves as Canadians or otherwise or their relationship with Canada. We did this on a tight time frame. We only gave you four days as opposed to typically the six and a half or the seven that you get to answer our question of the week. We wanted to fast track the results. And so 650 of you answered our question conducted between June 7th and June 10th. So up until last night where we cut it off, here are some of the key points when asking you about the impact that this has had on you. 54% of you rather, let me start with this, Sam. Thanks for this one. 87%. We'll get to this later. 87% of of, of real talkers do not see when it comes to cancel culture and all that. 87% of real talkers do not see renaming statues, buildings and places that honor people with troubled histories as cancel culture. That's interesting. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Here's what you talked to us about. Here's what you told us about how you're processing the news when it comes to how it has impacted your relationship with Canada. As mentioned to our panelists on the Real Talk Roundtable, more than half of you, 54% of respondents, told us that you do feel differently about your relationship with Canada as a result of these unmarked graves. We asked you if it makes you feel differently, and if so, how? And many of you took us up on the opportunity. One of you said a yes or no question cannot capture my sentiments about Canada. It doesn't change my relationship with Canada, but that is because this isn't the catalyzing moment that changed my feelings. This is just more proof to me that our country has darkness that needs to be brought into the light. I thought that was a great reflective comment. Another says, as a social studies teacher, I'm not surprised by this discovery. It underlines the need to realize that history as a discipline is not static, that our relationship with history can and must change to reflect new knowledge and interpretations of the historical record. It's essential to have a broader, more inclusive understanding of our history so that we can move forward in a positive way. Another says, I have a deep knowledge of the residential school system, but I didn't learn it from public schools. The discovery is unsurprising, yet disgusting. Our historical and current dealings with indigenous people is horrifying. I'm still proud to be Canadian, but we need to continuously learn and change. Another said, I am ashamed. I'm ashamed because I didn't know more. I'm angry because I wasn't taught the true history of Canada. I'm sad and horrified for the lives lost. Not only those who died under terrible circumstance, but also those indigenous people who had to suffer, who have had to suffer for years because of the abject horror of residential schools. Another says, for the first time in my life, I am ashamed to be Canadian. This was a soul-shaking, deeply sickening discovery, and I am absolutely shaken by it. The Catholic Church, other participating churches, the RCMP, and the federal government needs to make serious reparations. Sam, let's take a look at another one of the, the highlight statistics here. One of the so these are kind of the numbers that as the Y station team curates the data and reviews what you tell us, these are the, the numbers or the statistics that kind of really jump out at them as significant. We asked you about I mean, you know, people are talking about, you know, I to Mayor Iveson, I referenced Edmonton obviously will rename its Grandin LRT station. We've seen some schools renamed on the fly quickly like Langevin School in Calgary. I know that there's conversations with Catholic school boards. There's a number of different schools in the province named after Bishop Grandin, and you can expect that those names are going to change. Alberta's premier drew the ire of many people when he went to bat or defended Sir John A. McDonald, said without without Sir John A., there would be no Canada. He invoked the theory of cancel culture. So we asked you about this, and, and here's what you told us. Uh, from Y Station, 
Sam, the graphic that was just up, those three there. We asked you about how you feel about stripping names, etc. How should we limit, for example, how long that statues, buildings and places are named after people? A third. Of, I mean, this is look at how split this is. I'm actually quite encouraged by responses like this. Oftentimes you'll say 91% of real talkers think a certain thing, but how about this? When the audience is split, 35% of you said, yeah, let veneration expire. 33% of you, a third said, no, we need to face and honor our history. And a quarter, 24% said, don't name things after people anymore at all. Which I thought was pretty interesting. 58% of you that responded believe that an international third party should be brought in to investigate the residential school program and hold those responsible to account. Seems to be an obvious question. How or why should the federal government, the RCMP, let alone the Catholic Church, have any say in how this is investigated? Has the RCMP lost moral authority to investigate this? Interesting response from those of you. 14%, by the way, said that the Federal government, the churches involved should pay reparations to families who lost children. Three percent of you said you don't think there's any benefit to be gained from holding these institutions accountable. Three percent said there's no benefit. Sixty four percent of real talkers think we should take down statues and rename buildings that honor these tragic historical events. Is that lower than you might have thought? 64% think we should take down statues, rename buildings? No. No? I mean, it's very divisive. Yeah, it is. So that's a little more than half. So, I mean, because people... There's confl- like people conflate history and heritage and statues and commemoration and <laughs> all the rest. So... It's it's tricky. I uh, I mean, I have my own personal opinion, but which I mean, you're welcome to share if yeah. you so choose. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm not my my hands are not tied on this one. I just Kim Page Glucky wrote history is history is history. The hi- the truth exists regardless of statues. That's in our, our, our live chat. So I don't know. It's, yeah. But that, and, and, and with respect to Kim, who, who I just adore and I'm grateful when she joins us, a regular commenter on our live chat. That's not taking a position. No, is it right? And maybe maybe and Kim's maybe she's left another comment. But history is history is history. Agreed. The truth exists regardless of statues. Agreed. Are you saying that if you pull down the statue, it doesn't cancel Sir John A. Macdonald? I would agree with that. I would say if you take down the statue, it does not eliminate erase. It's not erasure. It does not erase what and who John A. Macdonald is. Not even close. Yeah. I agree. You know, I had a, I was able to have a, a private candid, just like a like an off the record, <laughs> which I'm now bringing on the record. <laughs> Jeez, is anybody going to trust me anymore? Is anyone safe? <laughs> Mayor Iveson and I were chatting a, a few days ago briefly uh, off air is what I should say. It was not off the record, but off air. And I asked him, I said, so what's this is this was like the day before that orange uh, covering, like a skin, you know, like the, the skins they wrap buses with for like advertisers. So they've, they've temporarily, at least for now, um, and you can read the mayor's Twitter account and everything if you want to, you know, get an idea of how Edmonton's managing this, including the name of the Grand and LRT station. So they've temporarily, at least for now, uh, wrapped it with this orange wrap. The color obviously significant. 
And uh, they, they're listening. They're going to figure it out. But there's this big mural in there and the mural in the Grand Inn station has been added to. And there's a lot of uh, city councilor Aaron Paquette has done a lot on that mural. It's a really fascinating reality, as a matter of fact. Mm. Um, Anyway, I'm talking to mayor about this and I said, yeah, so like Grand and LRT, that's got to change. And, and, you know, what's going to happen there? He says, can you imagine? Um, He said, being an indigenous person. He said. For many, the fact that they have to enter that station or pass through that station, past that mural would preclude some people from utilizing public transit. Like if something happened to you in your personal life, it may have to do with residential schools or it may have to do with, you know, you 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 can't take a freeway exit anymore because somebody close to you was involved in a fatality in that spot. And you now drive a different way every time you go somewhere because you can't because it triggers something and you can't handle it. I don't mean you. Pardon me. I don't mean that how it sounded. Not you can't handle it. You've made the decision for yourself that the healthiest move is to avoid it. That's what I mean. These are things that might not occur to some people, right? Like, oh, why don't you change the name of the LRT station now to some Cree word that I can't even pronounce? Do you ever think about people that that may literally have to bypass utilizing public transit? It may impact them on a daily basis because of the triggering effect, because of trauma, because of PTSD. I mean, these are things that we need to think about that. I'll be honest. Did I ever think about that even once before about what that train station was named? Not even one time. How privileged to be able to to not even have that resonate, not even once. But I would push back on that and say, uh, what were you taught and what was left out? Mm -hmm. So, yes, we it is now upon us to, you know, go and find reliable sources to learn as much as we can and speak and listen uh, to what the true, the real, full, complete history um, was and and then act from there. I mean, I'm inter- it's really interesting to see um, the the actual mural is gone, but the on the names, as you go into the Grandin station, they have been taken. There's been it's been crossed out. Hmm. Grandin's name. Is that right? And. I messaged the city asking what's happening with the message on the train because as you are approaching the station, it it says you're coming up on X station, and so they're looking at interesting how to say that because it's it, it's Grandin Government Center, right? So right, Government Center is still there. It's an opportunity, though, when you talk about reconciliation, what does that look like? This is an opportunity that that you don't ignore. I know, by the way, you know what I love about this show? You know what I love about this audience, about this community? As we're talking about City Councilor Aaron Paquette, the work he's done on the mural, he's in our live chat right now, interacting with audience members. This is just incredible. What's Brad, really, Brad chimes in on Twitter. I mean, it just just to touch on what we're talking about, Brad talks about triggering effects and trauma. He says the trauma. Brad's a brain injury survivor. He's one of our uh, he's, he's got to be one of our more motivated audience members. The guy chimes in every day, letting us know where he's cycling or what he's doing to get out and about. He's been a huge advocate for fitness as part of his recovery. Um, he says the trauma you're talking about, Rye, is just like riding by the spot where you were hit by a car. Brad was involved in a horrific accident cycling and he's lucky to be alive. And uh, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Brad. To speak of uh, Councillor Paquette, um, I spoke with him oh, like four or five years ago about the reimagining of the original mural and mm-hmm. then the work that he did um, to create stations of reconciliation. And 
the, the amazing thing about it is, I mean, looking back, that conversation, uh, it's, it's aged. It's, we've evolved our conversation since then. But I think it's, kind of, it's an interesting marker to see how that station has, how it went from we weren't even considering anything on it to then exploring it, trying to bring in different voices and actually go to the Indigenous communities and say, what does this actually mean to you? Yeah. And now we've seen the orange over top of the mural. I think it's, it's a really, it's kind of a study in the evolution of, of the wider community's awareness of what's going on. Yeah. Laurel says, why is learning new words such a burden? It's not. It's like I said earlier, if the Edmonton Oilers are scouting some kid in Kazakhstan, every single fan's going to learn how to say the name. Right. If you can say Yesa Pulyayarvi, you can say Amiskwasi Waskahikan. Right. If you could learn the one, you can learn the other. Speaking of Kim, she says, I have a sick pit in my stomach about the famous five statues in downtown Calgary. I grew up thinking they were heroes, learning that some were racist and, and only moved the mark for some is a problem. I mean, you look at some of the, I mean, the, the champions of the, that we've looked back through Alberta's history, the suffragettes, I mean, the federal, I mean, our nation's history. And, and you'll find that people that we've held up and admired were also like huge advocates for eugenics. And I mean, yeah, troubled history. We asked you who's a historical figure whose legacy we need to rethink, wrote Chris of the team at Y Station or canceled if you want to be like that. Here are the names that occurred most frequently. Sir John A. Macdonald, the famous five, Winston Churchill, Ralph Klein, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. I don't even know if I want to get into this, <laughs> but Ralph Klein had a Ralph Klein's. I mean, I don't speak for Ralph Klein. You don't. But Ralph Klein's Ralph Klein had some very special and meaningful relationships with some indigenous leaders and in indigenous communities. Ralph Klein's life partner, his wife, you know, had indigenous ancestry. I mean, there's that, that doesn't preclude someone from like, oh, I can't be a racist. I have whatever. I'm not calling Klein a racist. Don't get me wrong. But it's not like I have a black friend. That's not what I'm saying. Mm. But the, uh, Ralph, Klein, I was interested to see Klein on that list. And first of all, also, like what's what's I mean, it's escaping. me. I'm sure there is some stuff. But like what's even named after Ralph Klein? Yeah, that's there's not like there's not, you know, I mean, they they the they name they yeah. name a hospital after him, but he blew them all up. Um, Shut him down. Edgerton yeah. Ryerson, Bishop Grandin, Pierre Trudeau is on that list, which is interesting. And Frank Oliver. When we asked who is someone that's been overlooked in our past that we should honor the most recurring voices. I'm not surprised to see Terry Fox on the list. Mm -hmm. Survivors of residential schools, as well as those that lost their lives. Chief Big Bear Tecumseh. Dr. Peter Bryce, who was a whistleblower when it came to residential schools. Louis Riel yes. was popping up. And Laura Secord. More than just a chocolatier. We asked you anything else. And I love this. I love how we're going to end on this reflection before we just blow the doors off with trash talk. Anything else we asked you when you said putting humans on a pedestal is a surefire way to end up being let down. Mm. <laughs> Boom. Figuratively and literally. Right. <laughs> Another says enough cancel culture. Teach the good and the bad. Stop trying to rewrite history to be what you want it to be. That's not what this is. 
I just want to prove sometimes I don't just read comments I agree with. We don't try to shape or call the team of Y station does a great job of saying there was a there was a, a wide spectrum of comments. And here are some of them. Right. Audience member went on to say same person. That's how we forget to do good things and especially how to prevent bad things. If we wrote the Nazis out of history forever, how many generations before that ideology rears its ugly head again with no ability to look back and say this is why that's a bad idea. Let me address that in particular, please. There are no statues of Adolf Hitler anywhere in Germany and nobody in Germany forgets what happened. That led up to World War II. Nobody forgets. There's a difference between erasing history and taking down statues that honor people that have horrific track records, all things considered. Also, education wise in Germany, it's part of the curriculum to teach about that history. And I've seen it popping up in different places to talk about, you know, victors are the ones that write history, which I mean, if you take a kind of a wider zoom, a wider lens on that is it's, you know, the the dominant culture are the ones that write the history. So we or the people that actually put value into written history. What about oral history? I mean, it's just it's that is one slice. I'm disappointed to see that we're experiencing an issue with our YouTube feed right now. So it sounds like some of you are having a difficult time hearing what we're saying, uh, which is disappointing. It's such a meaningful point in the show. But um, some of you have switched over to the Mixler audio app. Which is how I mean, you know, hundreds of you every morning join us by way of Mixler, but I feel like we don't mention it very often. You can it's M-I-X-L-R. You can download the Mixler audio app. And of course, that's where you can uh, listen to us live streaming on the go, driving, what have you streaming us live at work. If the YouTube, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're not sitting down and watching. We appreciate that. Lawless is wearing is Sam microwaving some popcorn. No, he's not. He's troubleshooting for us. But sometimes these things are out of our control. Regardless, we press ahead. We'll give Todd's mechanical a two for one. I'll mention him double next week, just in case not as many people are catching this mention. But I do want to remind you that Todd's mechanical is one of the real talk builders that's been with us since day one. He said, Jespo, back in the day, he said, I think that there's something kind of in common with the way that I do business and what you guys are building here. Independent, fearless, ambitious. We want to be the absolute best at what we're doing. And so Todd's mechanical is recognized as Edmonton's best plumber. Just read his online reviews and of course they'll say all that you need to know you can give todd's mechanical a call anytime or write the number down so you have it when you need it punch it into your phone 780-499-7598 that's 780-499-7598 todd's mechanical edmonton's best plumber also want to remind you that the team at local waste has been sounding the alarm this week giving you the heads up entrepreneurs a bunch of them in edmonton are receiving these emails from from a new waste management company it's it's been rebranded there's been an acquisition here's the thing though integrity is one of the core values of local waste and, and they're sniffing out something that maybe lacks a little bit of integrity some people are saying whoa i just about found myself locked into a long-term contract with some gray area language Mikel and his team at Local Waste ready to talk you through that. If you got a suspicious email, kind of a weird email about who you're doing business with, entrepreneurs, when it comes to your waste, you're going to want to check out localwaste.ca and they'll tell you everything you need to know. Plus, they work hard to get you out of bad contracts for those of you that feel locked in. Every Friday, we wrap up our broadcast week. 
of course, presented by the team at Local Waste with an opportunity for you to get whatever you need to get off your chest. These are emails sent into the show, a little something we like to call Trash Talk. Aaron took the time to write in, says, Real Talkers, I know this may come across as like a super small thing, but given all the super important things that are way more important being discussed, still, hear me out for a second. It's, it's, it's a little pet peeve. It's a tiny little beef. It's accents on names. Aaron says, if you see an accent on a name, it's there for a reason. If you don't recognize it, it doesn't mean nothing. It changes the pronunciation. When you see an accent, don't just remove it. Try to learn why the accent exists. Include it in your writing wherever possible. It changes changes how you say the name i guarantee you can print the accent without having to change the font just saying we can be better aaron i love it thanks for putting that on our radar how about this one from adrian who says to alberta's education minister adriana lagrange saying she's being bullied as for the real bully i'd like to speak to the minister bullies steal demean threaten lagrange stole our pensions threatened to fire the calgary school board the audit found no financial irregularities by the way with her big hammer continues to demean mean Alberta school and students by consistently referencing failing test scores. Says Adrian in 2018, PISA tested Alberta. We ranked top 10 in the world for reading, math, and science. Says who's the real bully? That from Adrian. What about this one from Marshall who says my, Marshall the angry wild roser, how we've fallen in two years. It took the PCs 44 years to achieve this level of infamy. This is what a Kenny-led UCP has given us. Unless we can keep the right united not compliant like jason demands will leave the field wide open to the ndp the next leader of this province will be a woman says marshall either notley or someone from the ucp well that's up to you that from marshall the angry wild roser how about this one from stacy says would the minister the education minister kindly give her definition of a bully you know uh critiques and criticisms are not bullying letters and phone calls from concerned parents not acting Activists about age inappropriate content is not bullying. Alberta parents, teachers, members of the ATA, education experts have given critiques of the curriculum. That's not bullying. Statements from Indigenous, Black, Francophone, LGBTQ2S Plus, and marginalized community stakeholders, not activists, is not bullying. It's a difference of opinion. Opinions on this lousy draft curriculum. The minister chose to accept this appointment. We are the stakeholders. We are your constituents. We are Albertans. That from Stacy, What about this one from Catherine who says to the premier yesterday's confirmation of that $1.3 billion loss. She wrote this on Thursday. Alberta's taxpayers money should not, you know, should confirm in your mind. It's time to step aside. Many of us told you last year not to invest in a pipeline to nowhere. It was careless and irresponsible made without evidence. Many of us told you, you should not hold hostage our public pensions to offset losses incurred by your careless disregard. From Keystone XL to the Energy War Room to shutting down energy-efficient Alberta to corporate tax cuts offering no benefit to removing insurance caps to planning unnecessary referenda on the Canada Pension Equalization and Provincial Police Force and more, you have demonstrated an inability to carry out your fiduciary responsibility with our money. Cut! 
kindly step aside. That from Catherine. And this one from Wade. Is there anything sadder than watching a premier saddled with a hangover after a night of cut-rate Irish whiskey, furiously shaking the flaccid anger around equalization, hoping it will magically engorge to the throbbing, rock-ribbed, diamond-hard fury of even a year ago? This referendum, a pointless, powerless, pandering pile of performative horseshit, will have the rest of Canada looking down at us and wondering why Jason Kenny is humping their fucking leg. That from Wade, email of the week. If you liked it, smash the like button and share it. We're taking a long weekend. We'll see you Tuesday morning live. Thanks, Real Talkers, for another week of undeniably real talk. Nothing but mad love and respect. We'll talk to you soon.